everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's time for your weekly DC Spotlight for the week of May 25th, 2021. Uh, apologize that this is coming out a little bit later than it usually is, that we had a little hiccup with our advanced review copies, which probably still would have been okay. We could have had it out first thing Tuesday morning, except there's 11 books to read. And not insane. only insane, insane. Yeah, not only is there 11 books, uh, we got two stories. You know, we got a backup in Batman Detective. We got a backup in Action Comics. Stargirl's like a 40-pager. Uh, and then we got a, an anthology with Batman Black and White where there's four stories. And then the other history of the DC Universe, that's a prose book, basically, you know, which we, we love. We've been loving other history of the DCU, but it's not a quick read, you know. It takes a, a long time. So, Again, apologies to everybody. We obviously want these out in time, uh, you know, first thing Tuesday morning. Going forward, it shouldn't be a problem. We got the hiccup sort of ironed out. Um, so, yeah, overall, though, I, I felt it was a it was a pretty good week. Um, there's some books I really, really loved. There's some other books that I thought, eh, they're kind of okay. Uh, and then there's Robin number two, which uh, I'll speak about uh, in a minute here in the context of it reminded me of, of other books that we just took a deep dive on, namely Radiant Black, uh, that Rocky and I both love, and it's it's so spectacular what they're doing. And then you read something like Robin, and it's like, ah, man, it shows you the difference between corporate IP versus creator-owned. So anyway, what, what are your thoughts overall about the week, Rocky? Good, bad? Uh, no, it, overall, it was pretty good. I, I still enjoyed this. I am uh... – I, I continue to enjoy where DC is is headed. I, I enjoy the general direction. I'm uh, there are specific books. Well, I'll have some. Uh, you know, obviously, I'll have some criticisms about. But uh, one that I was, you know, the newest edition uh, this week, which was Star Girl, I was very happy with Jeff Johns, man, uh, showing some love to an old DC Comics presents issue thirty six, bringing back the Crimson Avenger, man. I got, I love that. I absolutely love that because I'm a huge fan of Crimson Avenger, <laughs> and so I, I had. I, I, I surprised myself by loving Stargirl because I'm not a huge fan of the uh, of this of the CW or the the attempt the TV versions of the character, but I really quite enjoy the the comic book. So yeah, overall, I, again, I enjoyed this week. You know, I, I mean, you know, you know, it's a good week when I'm loving something written by Tom King. Continues to impress me. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I kind of echo your sentiments on uh, on Stargirl. That one really really kind of surprised me it might might be my favorite dc book of the week but but we'll get there but anyway we're going to kick it off with uh with robin number two written by joshua williamson art and cover by gleb melnikov colors by luis guerrero letters by troy pateri uh, there's a variant cover by francis manipole um so last we saw robin had had his heart ripped out by flatline at the end of last issue uh and this issue starts with him basically laying on a slab uh, with a scar over where his, his heart should be or current or previously was. Uh, so give us your thoughts on this, Rocky. What did you think? Uh, well, uh, I was, uh, I was actually surprised, you know, I'm probably one of the few readers that was, uh, I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm embarrassed to say that, <laughs> you know, for the life of me, I couldn't, I knew that Robin couldn't really be dead from last issue, but you know, I racked my brain and I couldn't figure out, I couldn't figure out how he was going to still be alive unless it was all just an illusion. And I felt like a complete idiot reading it because obviously it's, Liz I guess it's Lazarus Island and nobody on the island actually dies. 
And <laughs> I can't believe I, I, I never made that connection. And even though I, I'm aware of what the Lazarus Pit does, I, I, I was just, this reminds me of Batman Zero Point. This is like a video game. I really like what Joshua Williamson did here. This is actually just as creative, even more creative than Batman uh, Zero Point. Uh, and it's like a video game. The rules of this tournament is that you get three lives. It just reminds me of the old video games, you know, in the, on Lazarus, on the island of Lazarus, where, all, where this once in a century tournament to determine the best fighter is, you get, you can literally kill each other and you're resurrected, but you only get three lives and you can't fight at night. You can only fight during the day. And those are basically, those are the rules. And it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. You know, and, and every fighter there, you know, including Damien, along with uh, Hawk, Connor Hawk, who we met last issue, and, and even this flatline, who did indeed kill him. She did defeat, legitimately defeat Damien. Damien is, he's a cocky, he, he's cocky, and he's not the, not, he's not necessarily the best fighter, as the Ravager points out to him. Damien's attitude and his narcissism is actually one of his weaknesses, weaknesses to which Ravager that, you know, tries to, you know, she's not part of the tournament, but he's trying, she's trying to, she even offered to train him to help him get over some of his attitude because Ravager has a has some experience with with being a narcissist. I think herself, being this being the daughter of uh, of Deathstroke, and I thought I thought there was decent character work here. I thought it was fun. This was this wasn't you know this wasn't really deep character analysis, and but I wasn't expecting that. But it is. It's the most that I've enjoyed Joshua Williamson in a long time because I've I've gone on record more than once that I wasn't a big fan of his the character work on the Flash on his Flash run because I I thought it was non-existent quite frankly, but I think I think this is this feels like Joshua Williamson is having fun writing Damien and this is a fun read and I'm enjoying these characters I'm enjoying uh, I'm interested to see th- these characters literally kill each other <laughs> you know they're. You know the the game doesn't start until all of them have killed each until all the contestants have been have died at least once. That's when the tournament officially starts. I mean, I really I really quite enjoyed this, and I'm enjoying the fun factor of it. I'm I didn't I'm not I'm not concerning myself going with a deep dive on the on the character work. Although I will say it's the most character work Josh Williamson I think has done in a, in, a, in a long time. Uh, you know, at least until we get into the next issue of the of the DC uh, uh in you know, infinite frontier, which is going to be coming out in a month or two, but I really enjoyed it, man. What about you? Yeah, I was less excited. Um, (laughs) I didn't think it was as good as the first issue. Um, I will, let me start off with a positive. I will give Joshua Williamson credit for truly killing Damien. Damien was dead. Uh, (laughs) But that's sort of where my, positive remarks and um because yeah i mean i, I figured you know you, lazarus island lazarus pits he, you know that they're gonna throw him in there it, it, they don't even go through that effort there's no effort put in here whatsoever about oh let's jump through some hoops and bring him back or whatever no uh he starts off he's dead he's on a slab and three panels later he basically sits up and he's alive like talk about minimal effort to put to put, to bring somebody back to life, you know? (laughs) Um, And like I alluded to earlier about Radiant Black and how impactful the death of of the main character there was, you know, the fourth issue in of this character, we're going to get a completely new main character because the old one that we had invested in died. 
and DC can't even be bothered. Joshua Wimson can't even be bothered to, to give us a few pages of, you know, some effort to bring Damien back. Nah, he died. But why should it matter? Why should we care? Why should that have been a cliffhanger? I mean, to your point earlier, Rocky, yeah, we kind of all knew Damien wasn't really dead. I mentioned it when we reviewed Robin 1 about I, I wish DC had the guts to kill a main character like that and leave them dead. You know, even Marvel kept Wolverine dead for a few years. Now, granted, they came up with Old Man, Logan, and, you know, X-23, and Dakin, and uh, 7-Eleven convenience store uh, Wolverine, and uh, and Funko Pop Wolverine, and, and 75 other Wolverines are running around. But Logan himself was dead, at least for a significant period of time. Instead, we here we get nothing. So when you want to think about damaging, you know, future storylines or the impact or whatnot. I mean, we all know that comic book death ever, ever since, like, remember when Superman died and people lined up around the building and it was on the six o'clock news and, you know, people thought they were going to send their kids through college with selling copies of Superman 75 years later. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And comic book death for the big two, at least has never meant less than it means now. And, and this may be the low point, right? Yeah. Like not only does his death not matter at all, <laughs> but they don't even expend any, any effort, any dialogue, any really any even explanation in, in bringing him back. You know, instead we get the, the after, uh, you know, after resurrection sort of instruction from Ravager about, well, here's the rules, by the way, uh, you, you can't really die you have three lives, so uh, as long as you die once or twice, you're fine. Just don't die that third time. You know, can't fight at night, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all that stuff's sort of interesting enough in and of itself. But but part of the reason that I, I was looking forward to this issue was the fact that they did kill Damien. And I was like, oh, how are they going to bring him back? Maybe they're going to do something interesting. Turns out they did the least interesting thing possible. Um, I mean, they don't even have to throw him in a Lazarus pit. He just wakes up. So, yeah, it, it didn't impress me. Uh, Damien, if anything, I feel like has reverted. Uh, it, it feels like, in, especially in the Tomasi stories, that he had some personal growth and he wasn't that annoying, arrogant little shithead that he, he was when he first showed up. <laughs> it's like Williamson forgot about all that and he's back to being an annoying little prick and Whoa. I can't stand him. Yeah, and I won't be reading any more of this because I simply don't care. But but I'm that's gonna... but but in defense though, in defense of of, of Williamson though, the price that 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 Damien did pay for his arrogance, those aspects about his character that you don't like, is that he did die. That's why that's what Ravager implies to him is that it's his attitude in general that is going to make him lose the tournament. And so in that respect, I, I do right. think it's being taken into consideration. Your, no, your, it, no your it, it 100% is, but I have no interest in reading about this little shit. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> the, only thing that had made, the only thing that had made Damien start to be interesting to me is that he had character growth. And Williamson has thrown all that out the window. As far as I'm concerned, kill him two more times and just get rid of him if this is how he's going to act. You know, he hasn't <laughs> learned anything. You know, the fact that he, he, his relationship with his father had grown, he had matured, and now, now it's just all gone, seemingly almost without explanation. You know, he had a falling out with the Titans, and now, it, and now it's all gone? I mean, this isn't even the way Damien acted when he sh last showed up in the pages of Detective Comics – 
when he sold, sort of told his dad, yeah, I, I'm off on my own now. I need to do my own thing. At least there was some agency there. He just comes across as a spoiled little punk here, and it's it's not interesting to me. The only thing that would be interesting to me is if we got some more Connor Hawk, but we've barely gotten any of that so far. So I may skim the next few, you know, preview copies, and you know, if I see a lot of Connor Hawk, I may jump in. Um, I because I, I am a Connor Hawk fan. I, what I wasn't aware of, I heard Joshua Wimson say recently, Connor Hawk apparently is one of the best hand to hand fighters in the DCU. I must have missed that in the Connor Hawk Green Arrow series <laughs> toward the end. Uh, Cause I don't, I don't remember that. Um, but again, it's been, it's been a lot of years. Um, I do remember in the beginning, you know, he, he had trained and he was, he was pretty formidable, but to call him one of the best hand to hand fighters uh, and Ravager, you know, intimates that here that, Hey, you might be able to beat this person or that person or whatever, but Hawk, he, he's the best. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, fine. If that's the, the direction that Williamson wants to go. But I don't know. I'm, I'm going to struggle to read any more of this. Although I said the same thing about Harley after the second issue, and I did read issue three of Harley. So who knows? I'm dumb. I might dislike it and still read it anyway just because it's there in front of me and it's a comic. And I I'm I have the FOMO. You know, I don't want people talking about what happened in Robin 3 and I haven't read it, even though I'm completely like I just – Damien had – he had started to annoy me less. And I feel like we're back at square one with this. Well, what did so. you think of the secret? What have you the the big secret that was revealed? It, what did you think about it? You know, the, Damien reads manga. He reads manga. That was hinted yeah, at last issue. He yeah, loves manga. He he likes it better than reading superhero comics. Apparently, yeah. I don't read manga. I don't read manga, and so yeah. I don't care. Yeah, he doesn't read Joshua Williamson either. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is and and the art. Um, I don't know. The, the more I see Gleb Melnikov's art, the more it reminds me of of Capullo, uh, oh. but a little a little messier. Um, and I can't decide if that's good or bad. Um, so I, I don't know. There are things to like here. I think Flatline's got a lot of potential. Uh, yeah. So that that's interesting as well. But I don't know. It feels too derivative. You know, I talked about it before. This whole idea of this this fight fighting tournament. Um, so uh, I I don't know I like I said I may skim the next one I may get sucked in, but yeah I, I certainly am not spending any money on this. I bought the first issue because I bought the um, the variant the I can't even remember the Frederico pencil drawing of uh, I think it was a one in twenty five of Flatline's face uh, just because I loved it it was beautiful so I, I that's the only reason I bought issue one of of Robin so. Yeah. Unless there's some amazing variant cover, I, I definitely won't be spending any money on on Robin. So, uh, all right. Well, let's move on to Detective Comics number ten thirty six, The Neighborhood Part Three. Mariko Tamaki is the writer. Dan Mora on art. Jordi Belair does colors. Adita Bidikar on letters. There's an awesome variant cover from Lee Bermejo. That's what I picked up. Uh, there's also Huntress Part Two, ex boyfriend. Also written by Mariko Tamaki, Clayton Henry on art this time. Jordi Belair does colors, same as the first story. And Adita Bidikar on letters, uh, also same as first story. Um, I'm still digging what Tamaki and Mora are doing here. I think I think they're a good a good team on uh, on Batman. Mora's art, fantastic. Jordi Belair, I mean, she's one of the best colorists in the comics, and she continues to show why. Wonderful color work. 
uh, especially her lighting. Like there's a there's a scene with a couple of the Joker's henchmen kind of walking down the street, Gotham in the background, skyline, buildings lit up, but so much darkness surrounds these henchmen except where the street light shines down on them. It, it's just beautiful. And then they're attacked by this guy coming out of the shadows with a, with a knife. And, and that's all color work. It's, it's spectacular. And, uh, and Mora does a good job. I think he's not that it was bad at any point. Um, and it may just have been a function of trying to cram so much story into such a short period of time, but there were a few of those future state issues that he did with Mariko Tamaki, where the uh, it was the, the the Dark Detective series, where the transitions from panel to panel weren't the best. It was a little choppy, but again, I think it was just trying to stick so much story in in a finite space. Um, that's not the case here. The story has time to breathe. The transitions from panel to panel are fantastic. Um, we find out the quickly the mystery about who we thought might have been. Um, uh, what's her name? Sarah. What's what's the last name? I, I Sarah Worth. Sarah Worth. Sarah Worth. That's right. The, the yeah. daughter of Roland Worth, who is the king of Gotham construction. Right. Yeah. The 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 crime the construction crime lord. Yes. Um, and we saw that at the end of last issue. That was sort of the um, the cliffhanger that was left there. Was uh, Sarah appeared to be back, but almost zombified. And uh, it's revealed here that it's actually Lady Clayface. And apparently, she was there when uh, Sarah Worth was killed. And so there's there's mystery there. Um, and, and we get a couple other clues throughout the story about what might be going on. And again, it all, it all goes back to Simon Saint, Mayor Nakano, Magistrate, all that stuff. It's all sort of tied in. But what I like about Detective as opposed to what's going on in Batman right now, it's not as overt. You know, it's, if this feels like Mariko Tamaki is still telling the story that she wants to tell, it happens to coincide a little bit, tie in a little bit with what's going on in uh, – Hunters in Batman with uh, with oh. uh, Simon Saint and whatnot, but the, yeah. at least this feels like she's getting a little bit more freedom to tell uh, to tell her own story. So uh, yeah, I, I thought this was a, a really great issue. I love and I also love the idea, and, and maybe it's because because of Mora's art, the way he draws the townhouse and the neighborhood that that Batman is living in, that Bruce Wayne is living in right now. I mean, the the story is even called Neighborhood, right? Um, I love this idea of Batman being in the heart of the city and living in this townhouse. And I, and I love the way uh, I just love the way Dan Mora draws the, the brownstones and the buildings with the, you know, there's a, gr- a little bit of greenery. Maybe it doesn't feel traditionally like Gotham, you know, it looks maybe a little more like Greenwich village, but I, I love it. Uh, I, I thought this was uh, done really, really well. Um, yeah. As much as I was disappointed to see, Tomasi and, and Brad Walker off of Detective. Um, this is impressing me, especially uh, you know, Tamaki for me. She's a writer that can be inconsistent, and I thought her Wonder Woman book was was a kind of an a, a encapsulation of that. It was wildly inconsistent from issue to issue. Even you get one good issue, one bad issue, one great issue, one mediocre issue. Uh, Detective has been been uh, to me far above average for every issue so far. So. Uh, so kudos to the creative team. Um, I don't really have much to say about the uh, the backup story. Um, it's interesting enough. It, it's all, the backup story kind of ties more in with, uh, I think, with the magistrate story than than the main story. Um, and and I think the characterization of Huntress is is on point. The art from Clayton Henry is is solid. You know, it's typical uh, typical Clayton Henry art. So 
it's really solid. It's emotional when it needs to be. Um, the color work from Jordi Belair has done really, really well. So it's fine. I, I'm not, you know, the biggest, uh, biggest Huntress fan. Um, I, I sort of prefer the previous Huntress to this uh, Helena Bertinelli version, whose mom was a, a crime lord. And we saw that play out in Bad Girl and the Birds of Prey. But but it's fine. I, I don't have any complaints about it. Um, I, I would prefer the Detective Comics book was cheaper and we didn't have this story because it, it feels unnecessary. Um, but I, I, I mean, this is a, 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 this is a series that I continue to, to purchase um, because it is really good. And because I, I pretty much buy every Lee Bermejo cover because Lee's a friend and his art is spectacular. So uh, anyway, what did you think Rocky? Uh yeah, you know what? I uh, full disclosure confession. I didn't know there was a hunter's backup here when I was reading this digital copy. I stopped reading, and when I finished reading the detective story, and I'm just sort of skim reading this hunter's basically as I'm ta- as as you were talking, and because to be quite honest, it's it's just not necessary for me to read it because it it's I mean it's it's fine in and of itself, but it's we didn't need it to be the reason why I didn't think there was a hunter's backup here. And I, I was because we had eleven issues to read this this week. I I just immediately went to another comic or an, another digital comic when I finished reading the detective story, and that's because the huntress, the, the girl that that died, Mary Knox, who is the the friend of the huntress who died in the huntress backup in the previous issue, Detective Comics one thousand thirty five. Her the huntress is investigating her murder. Uh, when she meets Batman in in Detective this week in, in issue one thousand thirty six that we're reviewing right now, and so I, you know, I, I really thought, you know, I, I thought it flowed very well. I I loved Marika Tamaki in, in, continues to impress, and she's really uh, she's doing a really good job leading into Future State and and getting to the point where it's clear what's happening here is by the end of this issue, Bruce Wayne is is not last issue ended with Batman being a suspect in Sarah Worth's murder a person of interest when the police found him in the sewage on the by the corpse of of uh, of uh, Sarah Worth and here at the end of this issue we have Bruce Wayne being a <laughs> clearly being a suspect uh, even at the beginning being a suspect in in the murder of Sarah Worth but also a suspect uh, in in general uh, dealing with um, uh, well dealing with another victim in this case and uh, and uh, in this case likely being the death of Lydia because Lydia one of the we got to remember that this 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 story arc is called the neighborhood and it's Bruce Wayne fitting into a new neighborhood in more ways than one as Batman he's he's got a new series of bat caves in fact he's got they use micro cave 7A in this particular issue he showed the huntress is familiar with his new little mini bat caves all over the place but he's also Bruce Wayne himself so we got the Batman side and then Bruce Wayne is trying to get it, get to know his neighborhood but the people in his neighborhood are dying there's you know there there's there's an increase in the number of un, unsolved murders and Mary Mary Knox uh, the Huntress's friend is one of them, and there's also a Carly Winters, and there's also uh, this uh, Neil Betterman is a suspect, and uh, he's the one who uh, Lady Clayface, when she stumbled upon uh, the men killing or the person killing um, Mary Worth, or pardon me, Sarah Worth, that that person was apparently this Neil Betterman, who is the assistant to Mayor Nakano. 
And this issue ends with the, Neil himself ends up dying with this strange disease, this sort of eye disease, or it looks like pink maggots crawling out of their eyes. And and the way this is orchestrated, it's almost as if somebody's trying to set up Bruce Wayne. And we, we got to remember how Future State began. Remember how how Marika Tamaki started off Future State with a bang with uh, one of the... Uh, the uh, peacekeepers trying, you know, murdering and trying to kill Bruce Wayne. This is all building up to that. And you, and you can see, you can see it getting to that point where Bruce, where Batman is slowly being alienated in the eyes of the public. They're starting to question Batman. And even Bruce Wayne is starting to be questioned by people in the neighborhood. Even this, this person, uh, Lydia thinks that Bruce Wayne is a suspect, even calls the cops on him. They search his house. Uh, of course, it's really Lady Clayface that he stuffs into his duffel bag. <laughs> but you can kind of see where Marika, what Marika Tamaki is doing here. She's building us to the point where it's all flowing very well into Future State. And the beauty part of it is, is that we don't actually need Future State. But but if we, since we're aware of what happens, this does seem to be dovetailing very nicely into it. Very well done. Dan Mora on the art. You mentioned it. It's fantastic. Transition, pages, coloring. It's all really good. Uh, like I say, I'm I'm quite happy with where things are going. I I like the the, the politics, the interplay between Marin O'Connor, the uh, uh, even as you said, delving into Batman lore of the Simon Saint of this uh, of uh, Sarahworth's father, Rollinworth. All the characters, all the drama, the neighborhood, the the mini Bat Caves. Mar- Marika Tamaki is doing a really good job here, uh, which is really at odds with some of her other recent work at DC. So I'm I continue to be happy. So yeah, she's a very talented writer, and uh, you know, based on those first couple of issues of Wonder Woman, I was so excited, and then it just kind of went sideways. So, anyway, uh, on to the next book we're going to talk about. It's uh, real briefly Black, Batman Black and White. Uh, we have uh, story and art by John Arcudi, Elsa Chartier, Pirek Colonne, Nick Darrington, James Heron, Klaus Janssen, Jesus Moreno, Kari uh, Randolph. John Romita Jr., Scott Snyder, Babs Tarr, Brandon Thomas. Um, I don't have a, a whole lot to say uh, about this. I thought that overall it was just okay. Um, probably – I thought the Nick Darrington story was was pretty solid. Um, the first story, the the second signal with Brandon Thomas was, was okay. It introduced us to a couple of brothers who are pretty smart going to a magnet school in the Hill area of, of Gotham. Um, I thought the Nick Darrington was probably the, the best art, the Nick Darrington story. Uh, and it was kind of an interesting com- um, concept. Uh, but overall, I think that the, uh, the Scott Snyder story, despite the fact that it had John Romita Jr. Art was probably my favorite. Um, it's basically about this guy who used to work crime scenes as a Gotham city police uh, officer, but couldn't kind of stand the the nastiness of it and the depravity of of people, and ends up becoming a a photographer and has taken more pictures of Batman for newspapers than than anybody else. Um, and it's kind of uh, his story. And I, I just thought it was an inspired story. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's my favorite in spite of John Romita Jr. art, which isn't great, but it's better than a lot of his recent art. Uh, maybe because it's in black and white, he put in a little more effort. So overall, I didn't I didn't even pick this up. Um, yeah, I, I almost pulled the trigger because of the Jason Fabic cover, but 
but even that wasn't enough for me to to want to pick this up so i i didn't even buy it i thought it was just average um most of the stories in here are just kind of meh so i don't know didn't didn't have didn't didn't love it didn't hate it just thought it was okay uh i do kind of feel like it's time to give this batman black and white thing uh, a rest for a while because we're not getting you know i remember the first couple volumes of batman black and white where we just got this amazing art and amazing stories uh, and that's just not the case right now. I just feel like we're getting mediocre stuff. So what's the point? Uh, anyway, maybe you feel differently, Rocky. I don't know. Uh, no, no, I don't. But, you know, I, I do. I need to apologize to all the creators of this uh, Batman Black and White issue six because I, I really just really very quickly skim read this. Uh, I love Nick Derrickton's art in Batman opening moves. My, my favorite story was uh, Second Signal because I liked it. It involved the Mad Hatter. And that's the first, it's the very first story. And that has to do with, uh, I like the fact that uh, just a couple of uh, kids are help, uh, written by Brandon Thomas. Uh, I mean, Brandon Thomas continues to impress me. He seems to be a little bit, he seems to be a chameleon, whether he's writing Aquaman or uh, anything else. And here he is writing a good Batman story with the artist, Carrie Randolph. Uh, and it's, I enjoyed it. And it's these, these two kids help Batman take down the Mad Hatter and they're, you know, they're, they're in, at the end, they're quite happy because Batman suggests that maybe, you know, they, they want to be their, the, the new Robins. And Batman said he'll keep them in mind. And uh, like I said, it was a good story. But, the, the, you know, part of the downside of these, this Batman black and white stuff, is, and it's the same thing with Superman red and blue, and we've talked about it before, is if we're longtime avid readers of Batman and Superman, you know, we get – it's okay to have a good eight-page story or 20-page story or 30-page one-shot, but – we, you know, longtime readers like us, I like a little bit of complexity. I like, I like some complexity in the plot and the continuity. And that's what, that's where I really get behind Batman and Superman stories. I like some degree of storytelling that goes beyond sort of like an, an, uh, an eight page or a one shot. And that's how come I just get, I just kind of get tired of this. Uh, you know, I guess I don't mind a good one shot once in a while, but I'm not, you know, I stopped collecting the physical copies of Batman. Uh, a, n- a number of uh, number of copies, uh, you know, number of issues ago. So I just, and so yeah. Again, I don't. If if you just want to get your good taste of Batman, I always recommend Batman Black and White. But uh, frankly, I think you're going to get more bang for your buck if you buy Detective, uh, the D- Detective Comics, and the Batman comic, regular Batman comic. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, unless you're a big fan of one of the artists um, that's that's doing this, then yeah, there's kind of not really. That, that much of a reason, or you're a huge, huge Batman fan. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, let's talk Mr. Miracle. Uh, this is The Source of Freedom, Part 1. It's from writer Brandon Easton. Pico Asio is the artist. Rico Renzi on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Um, and this is sort of the prelude to the, again, Future State Mr. Miracle story that we got about Shiloh Norman. This isn't the Scott Free version of Mr. Miracle. This is the Shiloh Norman that we got in the um, the Future State. I can't even remember what it was called. Was it just called Future State Superman? The uh, one starring, starring John. That's uh, John. right. Or, or John or Superman of Metropolis. Isn't that what yeah, was that, in? That's what it was. Yeah, Superman it was Superman of Metropolis. Yep. Yep. So this was a backup in, in those issues of uh, Future State. Superman of, of Metropolis. So uh, what did you think here, Rocky? Well, I have to say that 
uh, the sad part is the worst, uh, the worst uh, future state compilation out there was probably a tie between um, the Midnighter and Mister Miracle. But Mister Miracle in the in the Superman and Metropolis future state was awful. The art was terrible and the story was terrible, confusing, and really nothing happens. Boring as hell. I am happy to report I. This is very different. Um, I got to tell you that uh, writer Brandon Easton here, along with uh, artist Fico Osio, uh, actually tells a pretty good story here. Uh, it's a pretty good story. And, uh, you know, I it starts off with, uh, with uh, Shiloh Norman. This, of course, this is the Mr. Miracle of Shiloh Norman, not Scott Free, which might ruffle some feathers. Uh Mine was one of the feathers that was was ruffled a bit because I like Scott Free. We had a successful um, uh, twelve issue miniseries with Scott Free and Big Barda. I really think that DC's making a mistake. You go with your success. You don't just you don't just go with another character f- just because you want to uh, maybe tick off a uh, a diversity box. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm going to sound a little bit contradictory here and maybe a little bit hypocritical, but there is politics in here. This is Shiloh Norman, who is a star. He's a star in his own right, but he's got a secret identity. Nobody knows who Shiloh Norman is, but Shiloh, he's an African-American, and his agent wants him to reveal his secret identity because he feels it's going to help him with all these promotions he does and all these big escapes that he does. And his agent, uh, his agent's name is Vittorio, uh, or Vittoria, uh, his his agent, Vittoria, wants him to reveal himself. Uh, and it is... I, it's going to be interesting to see how the readership reacts to this issue, to see if they're going to get upset maybe with some of the politics or if they're going to just view it as some character work and good character work. I actually view this as good character work myself. I didn't feel that this politics was thrown in our face. This is Shiloh Norman who is, uh, in many ways, he's he's uncomfortable with his with his own identity. He's He's definitely, he's been... He feels that if he comes out that the uh, white community is uh, uh, is going to – he's had bad experiences uh, with it. And he thinks anonymity is his selling point. And he said at one point, you, you don't know what it's like to be black in this world. And so you know right away that there are going to be people who read this issue and go, oh, my God, you know, stop spoon-feeding me politics. You know, keep your politics out of comic books. But – uh, even his agent Vittoria is half Jewish and half Italian, and uh, you know uh, Shiloh. Shiloh, in many ways, is he's hiding behind. He's hiding behind Mister Miracle. He's hiding behind his identity of Mister Miracle. And for the guy who this great escape artist, he can't seem to escape his own self and self isolation that he's created for himself. In fact, even when he he he's attracted to this uh the fireman, this fireman named Denise, Denise Dorian, and he asks her out on a date through his agent. Victoria, his agent has to ask her on a date and actually has her sign a non-disclosure agreement because if the date goes awry, he doesn't want all this information to be revealed about himself. And so you know, I like the character work here that Brandon Easton has actually developed. And the you know the obvious politics didn't bother me because I, I think that if it isn't clear by now with people reading this and who, who are been watching the news for the last three or four years, this is how a lot of African-Americans feel. This is how a lot of black people in America feel. And so consider this a little bit of an education instead of being offended by this comic. Or maybe just enjoy the character work here because I enjoyed it. And um, 
Yeah. And so I find it really good character work. This is a guy who's shielding and he's hiding behind his mask of Mr. Miracle. And he wants to, he wants to continue to get, make money and be famous and everything else. He wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. But yet he's not willing to, he's, he's, he's unwilling to truly reveal himself even to a woman on a first date. His first date is a disaster with Denise. It's a disaster. He accuses her of being a boring date and he's the one doing all the talking. <laughs> he won't even let her get a word in edgewise. And so it naturally, it go, it, he realizes he screws that up. And um, so I, I actually found myself entertained by this and I did find Shiloh a, a little bit annoying, but I think that was intentional on the part of Brandon Easton. Shiloh is struggling with his identity right now. And I think he's trying to, he needs to escape out of his own self-imposed sort of uh, isolation in terms of his own identity. And I think that's the character arc and the theme here. And it did, I enjoyed it. So I'm really curious, Jason, to know if, if uh, how you felt about it. <laughs> so... I've never been a fan of the Shiloh Norman version of Mr. Miracle. Not sure why he was ever necessary. We certainly have never gotten a lot of character work for him. So that's a, that's another aspect. And then when he finally shows up, you know, we hear about, Oh, future state, there's going to be a Mr. Miracle story. I was at, at first excited. Then I hear it's Shiloh Norman. And my thought is who's asking for a Shiloh Norman, Mr. Miracle. Everybody I know who's a Mr. Miracle fan loves Scott free. Give us more Scott free. And, you know, maybe we can get some Barta uh, panels as well. So I was, I was pretty disappointed. And, but I gave it a try. And like Rocky said, it was absolutely atrocious. The art was bad. Scripting was bad. Pacing was bad. It was just, it was bad. There's no other way to put it. Um, so I didn't necessarily have high hopes for this. Uh, and maybe because I didn't go in with any expectations, I actually found myself uh, enjoying it. This is miles better the art by uh by fico Asio is very well done it's maybe not a uh, a style that that really appeals to me in terms of being really sort of clean um but it, it suits the story very well it suits the tone of the story very well uh he does good uh, facial expressions there's good character acting I, he's very dynamic with his page layouts in terms of, of laying out the panels and keeping them um very interesting. So I thought the artwork and the color work was, was done really, really well. Um, and I echo what Rocky was saying about Shiloh Norman. So the biggest problem I've had with Shiloh Norman is every time I've, I've read a story, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm team Denise here, right? He's boring. There's nothing <laughs> to him. Uh, he just seems like a, a, a pale imitation of, of the Mr. Miracle we all know and love. Like, Okay, here, here's the black version, but we haven't bothered to put any thought or, or development into it, right? Um, and we're finally getting some of that, you know, all those things that, that Rocky was saying that Shiloh is, struggles with. And it's, it's very telling on this, this date. So just to be clear, uh, Shiloh's agent goes to ask this woman out and says, hey, you met Mr. Miracle recently at the scene of a fire. He wants to go on a date with you. You have to sign this NDA. Because Shiloh Norman's going to be actually the one that shows up. Like Mr. Miracle's going to show up out of costume, and your your code word so you'll know it's him is capes. Um, <laughs> and and he shows up, and you know she's she's very attractive, very very beautifully drawn by Fico, and they they go on this walk, and Denise is is curious, you know, about obviously he's a, he's a you know world 
renowned escape artist and he's, you know, celebrity and whatever. And she, she's interested, but she wants to get to know who he is. Who is Shiloh Norman? And as they're going on this walk, what looks to be around Central Park, he's just, he's talking about being Mr. Miracle. Oh, I signed this massive deal for my first primetime special. I, I, I did this, I did that, pulp culture, yada, yada. He, he's not telling her anything about Shiloh Norman. And you can tell as they're walking, she's just getting more and more disinterested um, to the point where Shiloh no- notices and says, Denise, are you okay? And she's like, look, I, I'm not in film school. And I'm not interested in the inner workings of the entertainment industry. Like I wanted to know who you were, right? There's got to be more to you than just the costume. That's the problem with Shiloh. That's what we're learning here. That's what Brandon Easton is, is telling us. And it's great character work. This guy doesn't know who he is out, outside of the costume. That's part of the reason he's so afraid, uh, you know, beyond the, uh, the backlash he, he worries that he'll get for being a black, uh, a black man uh, as Mr. Miracle, when most, even the world knows Scott Free as Mr. Miracle, um, beyond that, he's worried. Well, wh- what are people going to think of me? He, he, there's a feel, there's feelings of inadequacy there, and it may or may, may not be tied into the fact that he's a, a person of color or not. I mean, that's something that Brandon, uh, Brandon Easton can certainly explore. It wouldn't be, you know, uncommon with people fighting against systemic racism or you know coming up from uh, growing up in in kind of poorer neighborhoods or, or whatnot, not, you know, that, that feeling of being self-conscious because you didn't have new clothes to wear or, you know, new shoes or, or that sort of thing. I don't know, but the point is at least we're getting something at least, at least we're getting finally some characterization for, uh, for Shiloh Norman. So I went in expecting not to like this, expecting it to be terrible. Not only did Brandon Easton prove me wrong and, and give me a story that was really interesting He's got me interested enough that I, I definitely want to read the next the next issue. Um, if I have any problem with it, it's that it's going to lead into that future state storyline that I just hated. Um, so hopefully if we can keep that stuff at bay uh, for a, an extended period of time, it may uh, it may turn out to be for the better. Because if you if you've read that future state story from uh, Superman of Metropolis, it's actually a loop uh, that, that, uh, Shiloh Norman gets himself stuck in. Um, so will he get stuck in it? Will this lead to that loop? Will he lead to breaking himself out of the loop? I I don't know, but, uh, but I will say this for fans of Scott free and Barta, uh, don't, don't think that they won't show up in the series because there's a very good chance they will. There's a last page reveal of somebody who is wearing a costume that kind of looks like a mashup of, (laughs) <laughs> Barda and Mr. Miracle, yeah. uh, heavy metal versions. Uh, and I'm not going to, you know, even though we, we do full spoilers here, I'm not going to tell you who it is. Um, but it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting. And he, he may or may not have ties to uh, to Scott and Barda. So we'll see how that all turns out. But, yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised, Rocky. Uh, yeah, I didn't I, expect to like it, and I did. Well, that's good. Uh, I, next issue, they, they're they're – it's the battle for the mantle of uh, Mr. Mer- of uh, Mr. Miracle and this this new uh, this new uh, character, uh, apparently the the combination or offspring of the big Barda and Scott Free is is present. I'm it, it's going to be very interesting. I 
the name of this new character I, bothers me a little bit. I, I kind of like the name Jacob. I, I like the name. I'm still beholden to, to Tom King's Mr. Miracle series where they where Big Barda and Scott Free named their son Jacob. And even though that series arguably just took place in his head and there's some talk about whether or not it actually existed. I like the idea of Jacob, uh, Jacob being the name of Big Barda and Scott Free's son. And then, uh, but uh, following the, the logic here of how this issue ended, it appears that that's, that, that would not be the name of uh, their offspring. But in any event, that's a minor nitpick of mine. Uh, but I, I like the character work here by Brandon Easton. I'll definitely be picking up the first issue and kudos to, to Brandon Easton because, uh, I actually, he, uh, I came in, ex- I came in expecting this to be terrible and he straight up, I mean, this is good. I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm definitely getting the next issue. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, all right. Uh, up next Harley Quinn number three. And I know I said I was out on Harley Quinn, but it's Stephanie Phillips. And, you know, I had my preview, <laughs> my preview copy. So I did read it. No Good Deed Part 1, written by Stephanie Phillips, art and cover by Riley Rosmo, colored by Yvonne Placencia, lettered by Android Design. I continue not to like Riley Rosmo's art, although it, it does suit Harley Quinn more than it suits a lot of other superhero books. Um, Stephanie Phillips is examining the, the concept of a smile, and we're getting sort of first-person narrative from Harley, which is interesting, um, and it is sort of uh, playing into her whole psychology background for me though this was the weakest issue so far um of the series and it continues to tie in strongly to simon saint and future state and the magistrate and and whatnot so yeah it for me this was just okay um i I really kind of doubt whether i'll read the next one after uh after this one because this one just kind of left me kind of shrugging my shoulders uh, I felt like my time would have been better spent elsewhere, but uh, I say that all uh, keeping in mind I'm, I'm a huge Stephanie Phillips fan, but I'm not a huge Harley Quinn fan. So for me, and eh, probably probably could have skipped it. Uh, I'm sure you feel differently, Rocky, because I, I know you love you <laughs> I love do, Harley. I, so. I do feel differently. I'm I I'm my smile is if keeping with the theme. My smile is broader <laughs> than yours is on this issue. Hundred <laughs> so, percent. Uh, well, first of all, I thought it was hilarious that Harley, in order to compete with with uh, Hugo Strange's safe program that he's got set up to help people deal with the clown attacks around Gotham City, uh, Hugo Strange, of course, is, is actually experimenting on the people under the guise of trying to treat them with his safe program, whereas Harley is trying to create a support group, uh, sort of like Clowns Anonymous, go to a CA meeting. <laughs> She, she doesn't, I don't know if she formally calls it that, but one of the other, I think another character calls it Clowns Anonymous. And basically this issue is Harley trying to recruit people into, in, into her support, emotional support meeting and to try to help people deal. It's way of Harley's way of combating against Hugo Strange and to create some better PR for her because, you know, she's got a lot of bad PR lately and she's still trying to be seen She's still kind of on a redemption arc. She's she wants to be a hero. She wants she actually you know we joked before she wants more funding from Batman because she wants more toys because she figures she's a de facto member of the Batman family now. She feels she wants to earn her place and she's got something to prove and she wants to help people and the support group's a way of doing that. 
unfortunately, one of the uh, the uh, Hugo Strange has a character by the name of Lockwood infiltrate the uh, the support group, and Lockwood is a sadistic former guard of Arkham Asylum, and, and Harley remembers him as being a really sadistic bastard, and ultimately Lockwood is there to uh, essentially sort of scoop up all the people that end up at the meeting to take them and, and take them back to uh, where Hugo Strange is, and the and it's it's entertaining. I, I thought it's a lot of fun. I, I think this issue is, uh, you know, I could get, like I said, I I quite enjoyed this, and uh, I thought uh, I continue to in, to enjoy the the character work. Car- uh, Harley is Harley's uh, she's you know awfully pissed off. This is basically Harley Quinn versus Hugo Strange, and ultimately her entire support group e- ends up in the hands of of Lockwood and ultimately Hugo Strange but she ends up at the end recruiting an, a new character a new ally at the end of the issue and even though it's spoiler filled I won't I won't give it away but um it was uh this character was born on a Monday and I'll leave it at that and uh I think um yeah I this was a lot of fun I I enjoyed this and I, I think if I think Harley fans I think I can't imagine. Tr- I should watch how I say this. I think if you're a real, and if you if you're a classic Harley fan, you should like this. And I would think the only reason why you might not give it a chance is maybe because you're still trying to get acclimated to the art. But I think this works rather well. This this is Harley's way of trying to get back, trying to get her groove back in terms of because she does have a psychology degree. She she is more capable than she appears. And this is just her way of doing it. And along the way, she's having these zany adventures. But there are some revealing character moments there. She's already got that sidekick, Kevin. She's, uh, and now we got this new, uh, arch nemesis of hers, uh, Lockwood, who I, I think that's inspired because we already have Peacekeeper One being, uh, one of the former guards, uh, of Arkham Asylum. And now we have another, uh, we have another worker at Arkham Asylum, Lockwood, being an arch nemesis of another of Harley here. So we we have a continued expansion of the Batman universe and and Rogues galleries. And overall, I think this is a nice a nice addition to the ongoing uh, to the ongoing narrative. So yeah, I I enjoyed it. <laughs> Put a yeah, smile on it. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. So, uh, all right. Well, let's move on to other history of the DC universe, number four, uh, or book four. This is the the question or Renee Montoya uh, spotlight issue, uh, written by John Ridley, layouts by Giuseppe Camincola, finishes by Andrea Cucci, colors by Jose Villarubia, and letters by uh, by Steve Wands. So, uh, what do you think of this, Rock? Well, I, you know, I really got to uh, know Renee Montoya, well, initially like everyone else from the Batman animated series, and then uh, I grew to like her uh, with uh, Gotham Central. I remember the Ed Brubaker, Greg Rocca, you know, they, I mean, that, that the, the classic half-a-life story arc where Renee Montoya comes out and it deals with her sexuality, with her Christian and religious family, all that is something that is really... Uh, Really, uh, she's got a very interesting history, Renoy Montoya. And, you know, going her origins starting back with Gotham Central, becoming going through 52, ultimately ending up as, as the question. And, and even to where she is now, present day, this is this covers the time span 
from 1992 to 2007. Story by John Ridley. Common, uh, how do you say that? Common Coley. Yep. Giuseppe Camicoli, yeah. Giuseppe Camicoli. Yeah. Uh, like, great job here. This is very much like, it. it's very much like the same thing. Every issue's been the same. Uh, I still like, it's not as good as the, uh, as the uh, Katana one, uh, which was issue three, but it's pretty good. If you want a good overview of the history of Rene Montoya in the DC universe, this gives it to you in spades. It's it's excellent. It's you know forty five pages long. It's it takes it took a long time to read, but it's it's really good here. And again, this is a you really get some background as to you know her as a young girl uh, raised by you know her own family were were immigrants uh, coming to Gotham City, uh, you know getting by, making just enough money to get by, sort of living on the edge a little bit uh, sometimes you know, within the law, sometimes a little bit outside of it, but she was, uh, struggling with, you know, she, you know, her, you know, staying in the closet during her high school years, coming out as a police officer, learning about the boys club, you know, and it reminded, she, uh, reminded me a lot. She, she made a lot of, uh, references to her time during the Gotham Central series where she, uh, meet, you know, meets, uh, Crispus Allen, who would ultimately become the Spectre. And, um, uh, Jim Corrigan, uh, the corruption of Jim Corrigan, and uh, when he ultimately ends up, he shoots Jim Gordon and, and her involvement in, in bringing Jim Corrigan to justice, her struggle with her own morality and, and her, own, uh, her own struggle with police corruption at, at Gotham PD, while at the same time, her relationship with her first love of her life, Daria, and then her blossoming relationship with Kate Kane, the Batwoman, and how that was sort of up and down. How she, how Daria was really the sort of like the perfect woman in her life, but Kate, Catherine, you know, Kate Kane is Batwoman is just as flawed and as screwed up as as she is, and so that's why, that's why her and Kate Kane always seem to have this sort of attraction to each other because they're both they're both flaws, they're both diamond with a flaw, whereas her first girlfriend Daria was like the perfect pebble, and you know, uh, Renee Montoya always would find a way to screw it up, and. You know, again, just the character insights and uh, and the layouts, just very well done. This reads, you could sit back and just comfortably read this and get a very good handle on the character and want to go out and check out uh, more adventures of Renee Montoya. This made me miss Gotham Central. And I very much, and it made me even miss the question and Vic Sage, because there's even a reference to Vic Sage here, her relationship with Vic Sage. With him ultimately dying of cancer, she even references the crisis because Renee Montoya had a significant role, or at least a, she had a role, maybe not that significant, in even Final Crisis uh, as well. And that Nanda Parbat and her her and the development of her own abilities and uh, involvement of Lady Shiva and uh, again the death of Vixage and how that impacted her. And all the people and the cops that went in and out of her life, all of that is just, it, there's a rich history here that's completely, that's very much uh, delved into. There's even some interesting references to po political events again, again, even 9-11. And, but I think that for people who maybe are turned off from some of the politics or what, what they, if politics really bothers you, uh, I, I don't think there was a lot here. This doesn't, this isn't an LGBTQ, uh, you know, uh, this, there isn't a lot of politics here. This is just a flawed woman who has, you know, doing her best to, at the end of the day, 
she wants to she wants to do what's right and as she says at the end she wants to live to make a difference that's the one thing that governs her life living to make a difference and again this is going to this is just adds another wonderful story a wonderful character arc dealing with another uh you know I guess minority character in the DCU and it, it is worth checking out. It, it is worth checking out. You'll, you'll do much worse than, uh, than reading about this, uh, Renee Montoya. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it's definitely worth reading. Uh, I do feel like it's the weakest of the series so far, uh, only because it doesn't bring in anywhere near the amount of new perspective that the previous issues have. Uh, the previous issues we've got, like, we got so much for Katana that we didn't know. So much of her, her background and her thought process and, and her angst. Um, and, and that's not John Ridley's fault at all. Um, it's just that, again, the, the Gotham Central series, which this draws a lot from, as Rocky, uh, as Rocky said, uh, it, that Gotham Central series is done so well. And so much of this was explored there that Ridley didn't really have anywhere. It, it wasn't necessary to, 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 to add on to what was there before. So it is a, a great recap. And I, I do sort of feel like, you know, each of the books have been political. Have, each of the three previous ones have been more political than this one, uh, as Rocky stated. Um, and I did sort of expect to get more about her, her sexuality and, and the politics of that. And, and we didn't instead, a lot of the politics in this has more to do with with policing. You know, there's references to the to the Rodney King riots, and um, there's talk of the police corruption and and that sort of thing, way more so than uh, than anything about the LGBTQ community. When we when we do get that explored, it's again it's through the lens of of the police force and how the police force treats those people as as different. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, they're not accepting, they're not welcoming. So there's some subtext for that sort of part of it for, you know, there's some politics, but it's, um, it's very subtle. Uh, it's, it's not overt, which, you know, that's a choice John Ridley made. Maybe it comes down to the fact that he's a, a black man. And so you, you got to write what, you know, um, I, to my knowledge, he's not part of the LGBTQ community. So maybe he, he was afraid of, uh, you know, trying to go down that that path and getting it wrong. I, I don't know. Um, what I will say is, uh, again, there's just not a lot of of added value here. If you've read all of Gotham Central and you, you read that era of Batman comics and you, you know, feel like you you know who Renee Montoya is based on reading all that material. It's not like you're going to jump in here and, and read this and go, oh, I never knew that about her. Because uh, it's just, again, there's not a lot of added material. Whereas I think you could have read every Katana appearance in the DC Universe and read her spotlight in other history of the DC Universe, and you would have gained a lot. Um, there's a lot there that that hasn't been anywhere else. Yeah. This, like Rocky said, it's, it's a recap. And it's done extremely well, and the art is gorgeous, and it's it's very much worth reading in my mind. But if you're looking, you know, if you're a huge Renee Montoya fan um, – if that version of your the question is your favorite character, or Renee Montoya is your favorite character, and you've read everything she's in, and you, you know you're you were looking forward to this because you're going to get a bunch of new stuff and new insight and new 
Rene Montoya story, that's not what this is. Uh, you'll be disappointed if you go in with uh, looking at it through that lens. Um, that being said, I think it, it is worth reading. I think a lot of what John Ridley has to say about relationships and um, police forces in, in modern times is, is very accurate and very true. And it is a good, uh, it's a good character study for who Rene Montoya is. So definitely worth your time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on to the next book we're going to talk about. It's uh, it's Teen Titans. And uh, once again, Red X with the big extraction, Need for Speed 2 extraction. And the X in extraction is that Red X uh, kind of slashed X. Written by <laughs> Tim Sheridan. Rafa Sandoval does pencils. Jordi Tarragona on inks. Uh, Max Rayner handles the art on a, on a couple of pages, two through four and seven through nine. His colorist is Alex Sinclair. The rest of the pages are colored by Alejandro Sanchez, and we have Rob Lee on letters. Uh, so give us your thoughts on uh, on Teen Titans number three, Rock. Uh, yeah. Um, well, this is very much tied in with uh, uh, Suicide Squad. And so if you're – quite frankly, if you're, if you're reading Teen Titans Academy, I can't see you not reading Suicide Squad. You should – because I mean, they're they're numbered the same. Teen Titans, a cat, like they're numbered the same. <laughs> Issues come out within a week of each other or a couple weeks. You absolutely want to because they're tied. Uh, this is Amanda Waller here. We know Amanda Waller has recruited Bolt, and uh, and she has paid for the schooling. She paid for uh, a, this Alinta character who's missing both her legs, and she has these these stints that give her. And she's got a lot of speed. She's got a connection to the Speed Force. That, that she accesses through that mathematical formula, the same one that Johnny Quick, the All-Star Squadron, would access. And uh, Amanda Waller needs a speedster on the Suicide Squad team, and she's she's looking for one. And uh, she wants uh, she wants to make bloody sure that Alinta's uh, going to take, uh, take up uh, the offer. And she basically recruits Red X to, uh, to infiltrate... Teen Titans Academy to basically, I guess, essentially help the Suicide Squad members uh, kidnap Bolt. In the meantime, we have right at the beginning, we have Raven having a vision uh, that we know to be from future state. Raven is unclear what these vision, what these visions and and uh, images that she has are. But we know that they're the unkindness and that it's neuron. She's having images of neuron and the unkindness and the the fall of, of you know the fall of I guess Shazam and and ultimately her own possession and and we know that's going to happen in future state or at least we know that's one that's a potential future that may or may not come to pass. Um, there's there, there's I do have some criticisms here here I, I do think that writer Tim Sheridan is bit. Uh, bitten off. I still think he, he's he's working with so many moving parts here. I'm a little bit frustrated that the entire the team the older Titans are are kind of surprisingly stupid. I don't know what they were expecting. <laughs> they, they 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 seem to openly admit that they don't know much about their own students in this. And I'm thinking to myself, well, didn't you actually have a recruitment drive? And didn't you actually like? Didn't they actually interview? Did you not go? I mean, isn't there a process involved getting to know who you're bringing to your school since you're dealing with metahumans? I I can't believe you don't know your students. It just seems odd to me 
And then, and then top it off, they're also recruiting refugees from Markovia. Now, this is very interesting, but twice in this issue, they mention they're, they're recruiting teenage refugees from Markovia. Now, and for those who may, might forget, Markovia was actually purchased. That's right. Purchased, bought by Leviathan. Mark Shaw. Who? Mark Shaw. <laughs> Mark Shaw, the Leviathan, purchased an entire country, Markovia. And I'm assuming that behind the scenes, there must be some refugees that are fleeing Markovia because Leviathan's taken it over. So there might be a Leviathan connection there. But they're, they're recruiting those uh, those students. And in the meantime, we've got... We've got Red X helping Peacemaker and the members of the Suicide Squad, Talon, infiltrate Titans Academy. Now, there's a couple things here that right away sort of uh, bother me right away. One thing that Amanda Waller, you know, your favorite character, Jace. <laughs> I know how much you like Amanda Waller. And uh, I know you don't like her to begin with. You're, and you can't possibly like her in this issue. She She actually says to Talon, you know, Peacemaker, they're infiltrating Titans Academy and... And Peacemaker's trying to ignore Amanda Waller. And Amanda Waller tells Talon to retrieve the asset and do whatever you have to do. Kill every last one of them for all I care. I mean, Amanda Waller is telling Talon to kill teenagers at a school. I think I think that's crossing a line here. I mean, I know Amanda Waller is badass. And yeah, I know she's been, she's done some, I guess, bad things. But I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I think that's a bridge too far. I don't know if she would actually tell one of her... I mean, there was no need to tell Talon to kill students at a school. I think that was just in really, really bad taste. Uh, and that actually repulsed me. And uh, so much so that I was glad that Crush, the character Crush, basically takes out Talon and uh, almost, you know, they all, Donna Troy thinks Crush is actually going to kill Talon at one point. And uh, Crush is so insulted by it that she says, I'm not like my father, and Crush literally quits going to the school, and we're going to see Crush and Lobo, we're going to see Crush go on a manhunt to try to find her father in the in the new series of Crush and Lobo, which will debut next week. But I think that was a nice that was a nice segue into that series, which sort of begins here. Um, Is that a series? I thought it was a one-shot. It's a series? Um, you know what? I, I might stand to be corrected, Jace. Maybe it is just a one-shot. I, I haven't fully read the whole thing. I, I stand to be corrected. Maybe it is just a one shot. I thought maybe yeah. it was, uh, I got the feeling that it almost has to be more than just, uh, a, a one off, but, but who knows? But it's because if it is just a one off, then I was, then why did Crush quit Titans Academy? Cause it kind of bothers me. One of the most interesting characters is Crush. <laughs> if, if she's not yeah. going to have her own series, don't take her out of Titans Academy. Cause I kind of like Crush. She's a character that's well known, well liked, I think, and uh, she's a high. I think one of the more interesting new characters uh, flowing out of well of DC in the last few years. But uh, in any event, we have um, um, it, a couple of other revelations here. Peacemaker. It's revealed that we thought Warp. Uh, I joke last last time we reviewed the last issue, and when we reviewed Titans. When our last time we reviewed Suicide Squad, I joked that 
all the teleporters on the on the team are, keep dying off. <laughs> and the last teleporter that was killed was Warp. And it, it's revealed here that Warp isn't in fact dead at all. He's I think he's working alongside uh, Peacemaker. So Peacemaker seems to have his own little team, I think, on the side, working maybe kind of with and kind of against Amanda Waller. Peacemaker continues to have a very antagonistic relationship with Amanda Waller, and I kind of like it. You know, just when I think Peacemaker is a bigger jerk than Amanda Waller, Amanda Waller comes along and shows she's a bigger bitch than Peacemaker. I'm not sure which character I dislike more. In a good way, by the way. I mean, they're both characters I love to kind of hate, but Peacemaker is a little bit more, at least his code is a little bit more tolerable. I mean, even Peacemaker won't kill kids. Even Peacemaker, you know, finding out, you know, uh, Red X tells him, you're really going to kill kids? And Peacemaker calls on Warp to teleport them all out of there. And then Amanda Waller's telling telling Warp, to, you know, or telling Ta- Talon to go ahead and go nuts and, and do whatever you have to. And in any event, I really like the chaos of this issue. It it worked. I I am the fact that I hate Amanda Waller is a good thing. It, I'm 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 emotionally invested in this story. I love hating that bitch. You know, I mean, you already hated her, but I'm actually emotionally invested in this story. I like the character work here. We, in between all this, there are scenes where the other characters are, uh, in between the action scenes where the other characters are, they're having their character moments, the other students. And, uh, and I, I should actually say as well that, um, the, some of the scenes overlap with scenes in the Suicide Squad. And this does end with the so-called Bat Pack. <laughs> Bat Pack consisting of Brat Girl, Chupacabra, and Mega Bat, where they get together and they resolve themselves to discover the identity of Red X. Because one of the frustrating things here that ends up being the case is it's revealed that, well, and we already knew it, that, you know, Nightwing and Starfire and Cyborg and Changeling, none of them know the identity of Red X, but they're lying to the students saying that they do. They're not only lying to their students, but their students are, their lives are in danger. They're almost killed by the suicide squad. I mean, this, there's no way that this school would be allowed to stand. I mean, can you imagine the first letter home or the first call to your parents from Titans Academy after this? I mean, this school has got to lose its charter. I mean, this is unbelievable, but (laughs) I know it's just a comic book, but these are the things I think about. It's like, I don't want to send my kids to Titans Academy. I tell you what. And I don't want them to become a member of the so-called Bat Pack here, uh, you know, who are now going to be looking for who is Red X. But uh, in any event, this was a chaotic issue, but I'm still on board. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm filled with criticism while at the same time, I got to admit to being very curious as to where the hell this is going, even though I kind of already know because of future states. So I don't know, man. What do you think? Yeah, I wasn't a big fan. Um, only because it says Teen Titans on the cover, and I felt like we got more Suicide Squad than we did Teen Titans. And we need more Teen Titans. We need Tim Sheridan to spend some time on on the Teen Titans, uh, on the Academy. You know, I, I feel yeah. like especially the older Titans have gotten very little screen time. Um, we don't really understand by, behind their thought process other than apparently their thought process, like you alluded to, included not doing background checks. For God's sakes, Nightwing, you're sleeping with Barbara Gordon. I think Oracle can't provide some background on some of these people. Yeah. Maybe nudge her, you know, when you wake up in the morning. Hey, do you mind if I send you a list of names and you give me some information? Seems like you might want to know who's at your school. I don't know. Just just a thought. 
so yeah, I just I it's it's still good, but like you said, this was was chaotic. Um, it's a problem when you do crossovers like this. Uh, we did get a lot of crush in the issue, which I, I think was good. We got some some more background on uh, Atlina, which I, I think was good. Um, but but the rest of the issue, I feel like it's we get mostly Suicide Squad stuff. I did think the fight was pretty solid, and uh, the art is also spectacular. I think uh, yeah, really Sandoval right? and, and yeah, Jordi Tarragona. Um, and it's so interesting because th- this is the level of art I expect from that art team. And if you remember, especially in the uh, the first issue of the Future State Teen Titans, uh, Rafa's art was was really subpar. Was really not up to to this level, um, as opposed to this, which it just looks gorgeous. It's beautiful. So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm still on board. I'm still uh, going to check out the next issue, but I am I am ready. Like one thing that will kind of make me want to quit reading is if they drag that red X mystery out just, you know, interminably like 15 issues or something insane like that, that, that will, that will get old really fast. The whole, who is red X thing. And they probably Um, will because we know that Red X, that's that's what we know what's going to happen in Future State. We know that that plays a role leading into Future State. So there is there is some concern there. I share your concern about that. Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm hoping that we don't and I'm hoping that this this crossover, we can just resolve the whole thing with Amanda wanting her own uh, her own speedster and uh, and we can put the whole bolt saga behind us and get on to like focusing on Teen Titans Academy and those students, because, you know, I think we were both pretty impressed with the first issue uh, that Tim Sheridan gave us that, that classic feel that you, you know, you get in books like Umbrella Academy, Deadly Class, things like that, where you, it really does feel like a, a, a school and you're getting to know the students. I want to spend my time getting to know the students. I want to see them go into class and I want to see them building relationships with each other and, learning how to use their powers. And, you know, that's, it says right there, Teen Titans Academy on the title. So I, I expect a story about Teen Titans Academy, not a story about Amanda Waller and Suicide Squad, where my feelings are well known. Uh, <laughs> I'm liking Suicide Squad. I'm hating Amanda Waller more with every day. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on. Uh, next book, and we kind of mentioned it right at the top. It's the Stargirl uh Spring Break Special, The Seven Soldiers of Victory, is uh, who stars in the book, basically. Uh, but it's called The Seven Soldiers of, of Spring Break, <laughs> which is, I think, pretty uh, pretty funny. Uh, Jeff Johns is the writer. Todd Nock is the artist. Hi-Fi does the colors. Rob Lee on letters. Um, and I just sort of dove, dove right in, right? Like I, I Obviously, I know Stargirl is a creation of Jeff Johns, inspired by the sister he lost tragically in a uh, in a plane accident, plane crash. Um, and I, I, like I said, I just dove right in. I didn't stop to think about okay, who's the creative team? I, I obviously you look at the art. I know immediately it's it's from uh, my friend Todd Nock, which I, I'm a big fan of his art. And I'm going through and I'm I'm reading the dialogue, uh, and you know, seeing the pacing of the story. Um, and immediately I'm, I'm thinking, man, I, I love this dialogue. I love the back and forth right away, the opening scene between Amiko, Red Arrow, and her older brother, Green Arrow, Oliver Queen. And there's a little bit of recap here. And Oliver's explaining how he 
he could have been the golden age green arrow and still be the modern day green arrow and, and telling Amiko how that works. And I, I'm just hit by how perfect this dialogue is. It's scripted so well. So I'm, I'm immediately like, wait, so who, wait, who wrote this? Cause this, this is spectacular. I, I love the, the back and forth. Like, yeah. Oh, Jeff Johns, you know, big, big of surprise. So, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a reason that, that people love Jeff Johns work, you know, he makes it, seems so effortless in bringing these characters to life. And these are exactly the kind of characters that we, a lot of fans of Jeff Johns, a lot of DC fans love to see him, right? He's so reverential to the past, but can, can modernize characters. He bridges that gap so well. Um, so for me, the Jeff Johns story, the plot, the pacing, the art. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And the best thing about the whole issue uh, and there's a lot to like here with them fighting Clock King and Todd Nock does a, a great job of this bombastic over the top technology and, and wonderful time travel scenes and the color work from Hi-Fi is done very well. It's a very colorful, bright book, which, you know, you hear spring break. That's exactly what you would hope. Um, and all that is just is great. A creative team firing all cylinders. The best part about the whole book is when you get to the end of that first story and it says to be continued in star girl, number one. <laughs> now yeah. prior to reading this, I would not have necessarily been excited for a star girl. Number one. I've been like, okay, who's the creative team. Maybe I'll check it out. Um, after reading the story, I'm excited. Like my reaction was, Oh, to be continued in star girl. Number one. Hell yeah. I'm all in on this. This is fun. This is uh, hopeful. Uh, you know, Rocky and I always kind of tease you guys about you, you get tired of hearing us use the word hope when we uh, refer to the DC universe. But you know that feeling that DC Rebirth had? What's that feeling again? Oh, yeah, a feeling of hope. Yes, that's, <laughs> what this, that's what this is. Yes, there's conflict. Yes, there are problems. Yes, there are uh, people that need to be rescued. There are, you know, situations that are they're, they're trying to get in hand. Um, the new Crimson Avenger has her own problems with these cursed guns that she's taken on people need to be rescued there are problems but there's it, there's a brightness here there's a sense of fun um and so yeah like when i saw that star to be continued in star girl number one i, I loved it I, I was really happy um yeah i thought this was spectacular uh kind of a, a little cherry on top of the sunday was the fact that we got a double page spread of the seven soldiers of victory uh, and as soon as I saw that, I immediately knew which artist it was, Jerry Ordway, maybe the, <laughs> the best modern, I'll say, I'll call him the best modern day golden age artist, right? Like he, he can draw like Justice Society or All-Star Squadron, the, the characters of those era uh, better than anybody, I feel like. Um, so I thought that was great. There, There is a little uh, couple page backup um, that's, that's drawn by Brian Hitch with Per Degaton and some of the other um Justice Society, Clock King, and, and whatnot. Um, it's called Justice Society Passes Prologue. And you just wonder if if that's not a hint that Justice Society could be could be coming back. I mean, I don't know what Jeff Johns is working on these days. We know that his Shazam series finished up. We know that Doomsday Clock finished up. I would imagine he's going to write Stargirl. I mean, I know he's involved in the Stargirl TV show. Um, but could he possibly be working on a Justice Society book as well? I mean, we just don't know, but yeah, I thought that I thought this was great. Um, 
You know, it was a story that that much like I was talking about how how Jeff Johns is such a great writer who brings in uh, a lot of the the historical characters and historical stories from from DC and and finds a way to bridge them and make them relevant for for the current time. And that's sort of exactly the story he's telling here. You know, they're they're attacking the Clock King who's trying to to uh, grab this time machine and uh, for his own his own uh, purposes. Um, and the, the seven soldiers are out there trying to, to rescue the, the original Crimson Avenger who sort of died in this uh, adventure. They're kind of in a time loop, so to speak. Um, and so, yeah, I thought that it all worked. Uh, it made sense. You don't, it's one of those one shots where you don't need to know anything about any of these characters. Uh, you don't need to know anything about star girl or Crimson Avenger or, or anything. Everything is given to you here. Um, so I don't, I don't really have anything to, uh, to complain about. I, I, this is a really fun, uh, fun issue. Um, the, the only thing, the only thing that I, uh, wish that we may have gotten, I think it would have been interesting to get a, like a who's who page or some kind of bio for clock King, just to have a little more context for people who aren't, aren't familiar with him at all. Uh, I think that would be helpful, but uh, it's a extremely small nitpick. Uh, and I think you can pick up contextually what you need to know. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was great. Uh, I don't know how, how you felt about it, Rocky, but, this is probably my my favorite DC book this week. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the things that I really got to give uh, kudos to is uh, I remember back in the day reading uh, whatever happened to the Crimson Avenger. I go, I own that issue of Superman and the Flash. Uh, in fact, I, I cracked it open and I reread it again. Superman and the Flash. It was uh, DC Comics presents number thirty eight. And Crimson Avenger dies in that issue. And I got to tell you, one of the things that bothered me back in the day was that just how how boring it was. He he just it seemed to be such a boring way to die for a superhero. He died unknown. Nobody knew that he was he was he was steering a boat out into the harbor that had bombs in it. But nobody knew he was on the boat and that he was steering it. And he died relatively unknown. And it was really a tragic ending because he died. Nobody knowing how he died. And what I love about Jeff Johns is that Jeff Johns is saying, hey, wait a minute. He died. Some there's far, far more to that story. You thought that was a boring story in DC Comics Presents number thirty-eight. No, it isn't. And leave it to Jeff Johns to take that story and give this background to it in spectacular fashion. Because on that boat, unbeknownst to all of us, is one of Per Degaton's time machines that's controlled by Clock King, used by Clock King. And Per Degaton is the primary villain of the All Star Squadron, whose primary uh era of operations was in, during World War II and of course at the end of this issue in, in November 22nd 1940 Per Degaton shows up to Clock King who at the end of this adventure is, is sent back to his proper time and Per Degaton is clearly going to be a villain to be reckoned with and uh, moving forward. Meanwhile Stargirl and Amiko, the Red Arrow uh, they're on their own quest because they're looking for Wing, and Wing is the sidekick of the Crimson Avenger who died. So even though that the the great thing about this is that at the end of this issue, when the Crimson Avenger died, his name is Lee Marvin. When or uh, 
is it, uh, yeah, sorry, Lee Travis, Lee Travis, the, uh, Crimson Avenger, when he dies in this, uh, when he originally died, they never did find a body or anything. They find, he actually dies in this issue and he gets the death that he deserves and they find his body, they locate his body. And one of the last things he says to Courtney, uh, the star girl is, you know, find wing wing is somewhere lost in time. And that's what Amico Red Arrow and, uh, uh, Star Girl, that's they're going to be looking for Wing, the sidekick of Crimson Avenger, and I think it's beautiful. I just, I just love the callbacks here. I love the character work. I love how Jeff Johns effortlessly explained a ridiculously complex history of all these characters. Even how he explained how Roy, uh, Roy Harper, and Oliver Queen were sent back, and how they had adventures in World War II with the Seven Soldiers of Victory because of uh, Clock King's machinations, and how they ended up coming back and they and how the seven soldiers were ultimately all brought back this is meshing all of that and leave it to jeff johns to take that complex dc continuity and simplify it in a way that makes us want to come back for more and who would have known honest to god i wouldn't have thought this was a star girl comic this should i i almost view this like an all-star squadron this felt like an all-star squadron comic to me it felt it almost felt like i was home again and i was my 14 year old self reading uh reading all-star squadron i absolutely love this easily my book of the week and uh yeah and i'll stop talking now <laughs> yeah so i i agree with you 100 percent in for a, a star girl series if it uh if it's especially if it's done by this creative team and and i hope it heralds a return of the jsa as well i know there's a lot of people that are looking forward to that uh all right well uh on to batman superman number 18 uh this is continuing the the story from writer gene luen yang Pencils by Yvonne Reese and Jose Luis. We have Danny Mickey and Jonas Trinidad on inks. Sabine Rich does colors. Seda Temafonti on letters. Um, and this is con continuing the, the story that Yang has been telling about this uh, Otter I.O., you know, this, this uh, galaxy-spanning uh, wannabe director, I guess we'll, we'll call him, uh, this worlds apart story that he's been telling us where we're not only are we getting a story about the, the Superman and, and Batman of, of our world, but the Superman the golden age version somewhat of Superman and a golden age version of Batman and Robin who don't even know each other. And there's different versions of Lois Lane. And yeah, it's uh, it's been fantastic. And in this issue, we sort of get an explanation for, for why that's happening, why these worlds are so unrecognizable and it makes sense in the in the context of the story. So, uh, what do you think, Rocky? Is this still uh, up there as one of your favorite DC books right now? Uh, it is. I will admit. I will. I got to admit that I really felt it should have ended this issue. This issue. This ends on yet another cliffhanger. I actually think that this should have ended. This this story. Yeah, it it got by the end of this issue. It felt like it feels like it's dragging. And for some reason, it just felt like um, it was such a great concept. And I think it would have, uh, I think it's a little bit too decompressed. You know, this issue, I mean, basically it's revealed that the bad guys, this Dr. Adam is actually Lex Luthor from yet another reality who sort of stumbled upon this, this technology in from Lex Luthor of our reality and this technology being this AI that, that kind of became part of this, this, this arterial uh, sort of like creature that that in the through the 
through the beautiful art is rendered every time we see a film strip being torn to pieces it's it's because one of the characters is sort of you know sort of falling into another reality i.e. falling into another movie another reality and it and it works well there's good character work here it's still entertaining uh i just felt it uh you know again maybe it's uh, i just it it i feel it should have it should have ended at the end of this issue um it I, at this point it i like i said i it was okay but now it's i actually feel that um I mean, like literally going through it, it's sort of like it was sort of rehashing the same thing. Now they're, you know, it's almost as if they're having, they continue to have conversations and another bad guy is revealed. We thought it was Arterio, but now it's another guy, this Dr. Adam. He's kind of out of the blue and they're, they go they go from adventure to a different world and they're having conversations in different time and places. And then it ends with them going yet another reveal that they're going to end up with the phantom zone. And it just, it just, I think it's just a little bit much. It doesn't need it. Yang doesn't need, he could have ended this. I, I realized that, uh, I mean, it's still, it's still fun. And like, honestly, it's still better than most of what's on. The, you know, it's still a really good story. Uh, I, I gave, I've given, uh, Yen so many good, uh, so many compliments here that, uh, uh, that, you know, j- it's a, it's maybe it's an overhanded. I, I don't know. I am I insulting him? I I don't know. I just I feel that this story could have ended, uh, and uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the art is fantastic. The, the art continues to be fantastic. It's a different artist though than last time, isn't it? Is it? Is this still uh, Ivan well, Reese? It's yeah, not- it's still Ivan Reese, but but he's got Jose Luis doing some of the pages. So yeah, okay, because it doesn't. Know, Devon, yeah, yeah. The Ivan Reese isn't the fastest. So. Yeah. It doesn't look as good. It doesn't look as fine as 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 finished and polished as the as the earlier issue as the earlier issues in the arc does. But but it still works. And uh, you know, again, the the detail is still there. You get the different uh, you get the different incarnations of the various character members of the Batman family and the Superman family: Jimmy Olsen, Alfred, Lois Lane, and older Lois Lane, and older and younger versions of Lex Luthor. And uh, again, uh, you got some good character moments and emotional beats with uh, Bruce Wayne confronting his, his his older mother. And there's you know there's there's a lot of things that that work here. And we get to see Alfred again. Alfred, of course, doesn't really exist other than in a ghost or <laughs> corporeal form in the other issues because Alfred is dead. So it's it's nice to see Alfred return, even if it's in this sort of otherworldly tale. And yeah, I, again, the art's really fantastic. You do get that feel of an old movie serial. Uh, I just feel that it's dragging at this point. But uh, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get that at all. Um, but I, I get where you're coming from, and I, I think you kind of, you know, you mentioned at the end there about this movie serial feel, and certainly with these golden age versions of the characters that that are basically starring in this, you know, golden age story would never have gone on three issues. Uh, you know, so you would expect it to to end to be resolved much much quicker. Um, so even though they're golden age characters, obviously this is a modern story, and it's probably going to end up going five or six issues. Uh, you know, because it's got to fit in the trade. Um, but I get what I get what you're saying. It does sort of feel like maybe there wasn't enough there to uh, to keep going. You know, it, it does feel decompressed. It does feel stretched out. Um, I think. 
it would have suited the story better had the reveal of, of Lex Luthor, Dr. Adam happened last issue. I think that would have suited the, the pacing of the story better because we, we do find out that he's got this deal going with Martha Wayne. Martha Wayne is a villain here of all things. Yeah. Um, and basically what's happening is Martha Wayne is sending criminals to Lex Luthor because Lex Luthor's from a different uh, reality. So she's sending criminals from her reality, from her version of Earth to Dr. Adam slash Lex Luthor's version of Earth. So Lex can do experiments on them. And in return, Lex is sending back this advanced technology. And so we, we find out that this Otter IO who, who, you know, fancies himself as sort of a, you know, the, the best creative mind of, of all time is actually using those talents to, to apply that to reality. So what he wants to do is he wants to make the perfect or like, you know, a director or, or whatnot, a filmmaker, their goal would be to create the perfect movie. Well, that's what Otter IO wants to do, but he wants to do that with reality. He wants to create a perfect earth. And so what Luther's doing is he's trying to help Martha Wayne unbeknownst to her to create this perfect earth. So that's why he's sending this advanced technology to her earth while she's sending criminals to his earth so that, you know, when the time comes, Dr. Adam slash Lex Luthor will migrate to the earth that is, has become perfected. And that will be the earth where Otter IO doesn't need to do any editing. Doesn't need, because what's happening is for Otter IO, each of these, each of these earths are represented by, by film, right? By a, a movie that he can watch. And when he's not happy with it, he burns it, you know, and there's no, there's no better way to dispose of celluloid film than burning it. And what happens in reality is the earth, that earth, that version of earth and that version of reality is destroyed when Otterio burns it. So Luther in a way is, is trying to do good, but you know, obviously in a, in a very Lex Luther way, a very selfish way, he's trying to create a perfect earth. So then he will put himself on that earth so that he will, he will survive. So we've barely learned that in this issue. So obviously there's more to the story. How do they stop Otterio? Um, what's going on with the Phantom Zone crystal? Uh, solicits came out. We saw that issue six is going to have Etrigan and they're going to be in hell. So yeah, there's a, apparently another three issues to go. So I'll be curious to see next <laughs> issue if Rocky's like, wow. oh my God, this has gone on far, far too long. But I do, I do get it. Um, being that these are golden age characters, much more innocent. Um, and there is so much going on. It does feel like we should be a little further along, but I think it may be just uh, some maybe not the best choices to do, you know, to wait till issue three to give us that reveal. Probably not enough room for it in the first issue because that was just kind of a fun, mysterious, you had no idea what was going on until the last page, so it wouldn't have fit in there. But I really do think they should have put it in part two of the story instead of waiting until part three here. So, uh, But I do agree. I think the art's spectacular. Jose Luis does have a very similar style to Yvonne Reese, um, but it, you're right. It's not it's not quite as detailed. It's not quite as polished. His backgrounds tend to be a lot, uh, a lot simpler or non-existent. Uh, but their, their styles are similar enough that it doesn't pull you out of the story. But obviously, you know, you always want Yvonne Reese to, to do it all. But uh, he's not the fastest guy. So uh, happy to, to see Juan Luis or uh, Jose Luis rather 
uh, give them a hand. And, and if that needs to continue, I'm all for that. I'd rather have that than have the, the uh, issues delayed. So, yeah, but yeah all in all, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty solid. It's still up there for me. It's not quite on that uh, Catwoman Nightwing tier, but uh, it's, it's definitely better than average. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> Uh, all right. Up next, we have Strange Adventures number 10 from writer Tom King. Mitch Garrods handles uh, some of the interior art. The other uh, part of the art is handled by Evan Doc Shaner. We have Clayton Cowell on letters, uh, and they also color their own stuff as well. So Mitch basically handles the scenes on Earth, and uh, Doc Shaner handles the scene on the scenes on Ra- uh, Ran. And uh, I feel like this issue, it may be a little more, little more scenes on Earth than Ran, um, but I guess maybe not now that I'm flipping through it. Um, but we sort of get the, we we get to read the report that um, that Mister Terrific has had been putting together, um, that Batman commissioned commissioned him to put together about what's going on with uh, with Adam Strange and. Uh, and did he really commit these war crimes and, and whatnot? And um, this is the big one. There's two issues to go, but we, we're getting a big reveal here. I, I kind of thought that we wouldn't get this reveal until the end, but we're getting it much sooner. And uh, I have a theory about it, uh, and I'll talk about it in a second. But um, Rocky, you mentioned at the top actually liking something Tom King wrote. So <laughs> give, give us your give us your thoughts I, on us. You know what? Adventure. Uh, what impresses me about Strange Adventures number 10 is this is the first time in, man, uh, this is the best Tom King has done to actually, he's actually tying up all these threads. Because one of the things that he did, I thought terribly in his Batman run, was that he didn't wrap up all the threads very neatly. There was all kinds of inconsistencies in, in between all the plot lines, so many question marks. Things just didn't add up to the way he tried to resolve things. It was obvious that he didn't put enough thought into it, at least in my view. And uh, But no, this is... Well, he also th- got kicked off the book before his, he was well, planned. Sure, he yeah. got fired. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's, let's not sugarcoat words here. So, But, but no, this, this issue 10, actually, it, everything sounds coherent. It makes sense. And... Mr. Terrific explaining his reasoning and what, what's so brilliant about this. And I, I'm going to give Tom King a high compliment here is that, is that he, Mr. Terrific really is, he was genius level. He really pieced together exactly what didn't make sense. And he's even explaining to Alana how Adam Strange, her own husband has managed to pull the wool over her eyes as well as the reader's eyes. And in particular, with three key points. Then the first one is that the picks that you know it's ran the planet ran is is against the 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 this armada of picks and picks basically let ran win. So Mister Terrific could was trying to figure out how on earth could ran defeat the picks because the picks have been winning wars for thousands of years. The second thing is how how did the picks defeat Earth? Because Earth's got a greater defense and greater capabilities than the picks do. So how did how did how can Ran defeat the picks? How could the planet Earth, with Batman doing all the planning, lose to the picks? And also that leads him to conclude that Aaliyah's death was faked. And he and and well I almost 
I mean, I, I know I just gave away three big spoilers there, but the way he connects those three pivotal events is that very clearly in his mind, Adam Strange cut a deal. He made a deal with the picks, a diplomatic deal, basically saying, you leave Ran alone and I'll give you the key to defeating Earth. And, and, and to sell it to the, to the citizens of Earth, I'm going to let you, you know, you know, you, I'll, I'll, you can have my daughter as leverage so that basically I can fake Aaliyah's death. Uh, and, and in return, the picks will let Adam Strange kill some of their own just to sell it to the people of Earth to sort of sell the PR. It, it, this is all a bunch of, this is all propaganda. This is all deception as part of the deal that Adam Strange, Adam Strange orchestrates with the picks. And at least that's what Mr. Terrific comes up with. Anyways, uh, I'm convinced it's brilliant. It's consistent with all those questions that I had in the first nine issues where I thought, what is this? Why is Adam Strange doing this? Why is he doing that? And all these, you know, Tom King can, the way he scripts things, it can be frustrating because he can, the, the, the shift from scene to scenes with, with a Tom King script can be very jarring and it can be very jarring for readership and it can sometimes take you out of the story. And there's been moments of that over the last previous nine issues where it's like, what the heck just happened here? Now it's making more sense. This issue 10, knowing what we know now, or at least maybe Mr. Terrific is wrong, but his theory of the case, so to speak, sure sounds pretty, it sounds pretty good. And it really, it's, it makes me, it reminds me of Radiant Black a little bit. It makes me want to go back and reread some of the previous nine issues to see, oh yeah, wait a minute. This is all part of Adam Strange's plan, and um, it's really, really interesting. And I'm, like I said, now, now uh, you, you can see the character work here, where Adam F Strange, you know, the message that he leaves in the book uh, was a, basically a hidden message to his daughter, who is really still alive, because he feels guilt over his daughter. And Tom King references it by Tom King always likes doing references with other literary work. And he does that here. But for once, Tom King has done so with a better effect than he has in the past when he's referenced other literary work. And in this case, he actually use, utilizes it with Adam Strange sending a sort of a secret message to his daughter, Aaliyah, who is really still alive. And beautiful character work here. It really pays off the previous nine issues. And kudos to Tom King. The art's fantastic again. I mean, uh, Mitch Garrard's, Evan Doc Shaner, the way they juxtapose the various scenes from Rand to Earth to, to the different character moments. Uh, it's, it's just great. I'm, I'm really impressed. I, I'm, I'm very happy. <laughs> like, again, this put a smile on my face. I, I, we finally got some payoff here. I like it. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> well, you're wrong. You are wrong. Um, but not in the, not in the way you think. This is a spectacular issue. Um, there's a couple things. So first of all, everybody, if you don't want me to spoil the ending for you, you should skip ahead because I'm totally going to spoil it for you. Tom King is lying to you. <laughs> and Mr. Terrific, yes, he is a very, very smart man, but he, he is wrong as well. Um, and I think that for a number of reasons. First of all, I don't – Adam Strange is a hero, and I, I – that's just been proven. And and there's no part of me that thinks that Adam Strange would make a deal with the picks to save Ran and give up Earth. So Adam Strange didn't make this deal. Adam Strange didn't have anything to do with it. Adam Strange was just doing what he thought was right 
at the urging of his wife, who he clearly loves and is very devoted to, and she seems to exert quite a bit of influence over him. So you know who made the deal? Alana made the deal. Alana made the deal. Alana is of Ran. Alana doesn't care about Earth. That's not her home planet. Alana made the deal behind Adam Strange's back and has been she's the one that's been pulling the strings and manipulating. And that's that why <laughs> that's why at the end, when she's standing in front of the mirror looking at her her own reflection, having read this report from Mr. Terrific, she gets so angry and she breaks the mirror because she realizes the game is up. It's not gonna be too much longer before Mr. Terrific realizes he made a mistake. It's not Adam Strange. It's actually her that, that did this. It's, it's, it's Alana. It's not Adam Strange. And that's why there's two more issues to go. If it was Adam Strange, you know, we probably would have got one more issue maybe, or, or it, this would have been paced out, plotted differently. But well, we, have to have, we have to have issue 11 for the tables to be turned to find out that no, it's actually Alana that did this, and then we have to have twelve for the fallout of of you know Adam Strange discovering that it was Alana. That's interesting that you say that because I I never got that, but uh, looking at this, looking at that page when Alana sort of cracks the mirror, I absolutely uh, I your interpretation might might in fact be correct. I I I interpreted that as her being angry that Adam may have lied to her, but. No, she's, that's but, not the kind of character that she is. Well, no, if fair, Adam had fair lied enough. To her, she would have gone and she would have, instead of breaking a mirror, punching a mirror, she would have gone and punched Adam. Well, so well, I mean, possibly, I, 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 from the beginning, have have had my suspicions about Alana, and I think it's all here in this issue. You know, she has gained for herself great power on Earth, being you know. Um, anointed as the, the the secretary of defense for the battle of Phoenix and the picks coming to earth. Um, so not only has she saved her own planet, she's gained tremendous power and respect on earth as this sort of savior figure. That's going to come in. Hey, we, we fought the picks on Ron and we were able to defeat them. I can tell you how to win. Uh, she's gained all this, this adulation. Um, so yeah, I a hundred percent think it's Alana and I will be shocked if I'm not correct. Well, uh, I think I, I think that makes more work. sense in, in so far as and and if you're right, it says quite a bit about. I mean, that's one evil bitch because she sat back. Then that would mean that she has watched her husband uh, mourn the loss of their daughter, who is in fact still alive, and that she's been keeping that from him. And wow. Well, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily know. I mean, it may have been that she went to him and said, hey, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making a deal with the picks and we've got to allow, um, you know, Aaliyah to go with them for a little while. You know, she may have lied to him in, in a different way. I'm, I'm not I'm not 100 percent certain that she she convinced Adam that um, that their daughter's dead. But it very well may be, you know, very well may be that the way this whole thing breaks and, and Mr. Terrific figures out that it's actually a, a Alana is that Mr. Terrific discovers that Adam Strange didn't pick the reference material for the beginning of his book. He didn't pick that, that Bible verse. He didn't pick the, the notation. Alana did that, you know, and that would immediately be a smoking gun toward Alana having chosen that, that verse that's, you know, much different than, 
what it you know originally was supposed to be. So yeah, I I, I hundred until I read eleven and twelve and and see a hundred percent that it's Adam Strange, I won't believe it. Um, it I think you know it's much easier. And, and again, it's not that the story has to be in continuity, but I, I don't see DC throwing a, a classic character like Adam Strange under the bus that way. But a lot of hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, not that Adam Strange is some household name with pajamas and uh, you know t-shirts and whatnot, but I a hundred percent think it's Alana and it's, it's spectacular. It, I think it's a more interesting story that it's Alana and yeah, I, I don't believe for a second that it's Adam strange. But I, 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 I think be wrong. Honestly, uh, you know, full props to you, man. I, I, I miss that. And I, I, I want to, I want you to be right. I like your interpretation better. I think it's, I think it makes for a better story with it being Alana. I think it makes more, it is more in keeping because there's a lot about Alana. We just don't know. And yeah. that would make sense and it would be consistent and it would create more drama in Adam Strange's life. And it is something that Alana would do. She would put her own planet ahead of Earth because Adam Strange is the man between two worlds. Alana isn't. Alana has allegiances toward her own. She's not like yeah. her husband. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. It's good. That's good. Yeah. You, you convinced me. <laughs> so, I, you know, I guess I guess we'll have to wait and see. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, another home run from from Tom King and Mitch Garrett's along with Doc Shaner. I mean, they, they knocked it out of the park with Mr. Miracle. <laughs> this is, is fantastic in a different way. Um, and yeah, I, it took me a long time to, to get on board this, right? Mm. <laughs> like I read the first issue and I knew it was going to be good. And I think, I think I read the second issue too. And then it just, it was one of those titles that I, it wasn't at the top of my stack. And I just, then I was in it. Oh, I haven't read last issue yet. I haven't read the, read the last two issues. I haven't read the last five, you know. And so I finally sat down and read it all uh, when issue nine came out. I was glad I got caught up. I was glad I was able to read this on the day it came out. And, yeah, I think I think it's spectacular. And, yeah, uh, I think it's Alana. We'll see. All right. All right. One well, more book to go. Uh, Action Comics War World Rising Part 2. Written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Daniel Sampier handles the art. Adriana Lucas on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. And then we, we do have the backup with um, with Midnighter, The Passenger Part 3. Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad as writers. Michael Avon Oming as uh, the artist. Taki Soma on colors. And Dave Sharp on letters. So uh, give us your thoughts on uh, on this. If, if you remember, everybody, because I... I it took me a minute to go back and remember like, okay, so how did action comics 1030 end? Um, I didn't remember, but if you do recall all these ships that supposedly had come from Warworld had just entered the atmosphere and Superman with a super hearing overheard somebody on the ships speaking in a Kryptonian language. Um, and that's kind of how it, how 1030, uh, ended and it leads right into uh into 1031 which uh interesting issue but i'll, I'll let you go first rocky what are your thoughts uh well uh, what was most captivating about it to me was the fact that these these uh, this these kryptonian refugees are on this ship and that's to me was the most fascinating about it and I had concerned about that as a, I had some initial concerns about Kryptonian refugees being found on a war zone ship. These, uh, these, these ships which are fleeing war world and Mongol has his war zone ship sort of chasing the, these ships that are apparently there's these, there's three Kryptonian refugees on them and they, they're, 
And they speak in an ancient Kryptonian dialect that is thousands of years old, even by Kryptonian standards. And it's, uh, it's, it's quite interesting that these Kryptonians, because they've never had a lot of exposure to uh, yellow sun solar radiation, uh, when Superman takes them back to the fortress, it rescues the refugees, hit, uh, Superman, his son John Kent, and Kara, Supergirl, they're at the they're at the fortress. Kelix of the fortress, the the robotic the robot of of the fortress of solitude. They're 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 checking out the, these three refugees, and they're determining that um, there's they've suffered a lot of injuries. They've suffered a lot of mental and psychological stresses on their mental and physical well being, and clearly they're uh, they're injured. And and what's interesting about it is. Uh, you know, where where are their origins? How did they end up on Warworld? And it's quite interesting that it, it appears as if that, that John Kent's suspicions here are correct. John Kent continues to sort of battle with the idea that, struggle with the idea that his father might die. Uh, he's coming from the future. He, he believes that his father, Superman, is going to die at some point. And it might even involve Mongol because he's heard different things in the future about his father's potential death. And he's right away, he's highly suspicious of these Kryptonian refugees. He doesn't really trust the situation. And we know that, that Mongol, ultimately it is revealed that Mongol did in fact send these refugees. It is part of Mongol's plan to sort of lure out Superman by sending these refugees to Earth, all part of an elaborate plan. And one of these refugees even has the Superman symbol, the L family crest sort of burnt onto her hand. Uh, another one has it burnt onto his chest. Clearly there's, there's something going on here. It's definitely an elaborate way to sort of pull Superman out. I got to tell you when that, when we were teased this in future state, we were teased and the only teases we got of Superman were of Superman in gladiatorial combat in the arena on war world. I, I, I thought it was somewhat a little bit tropey and cliche because we've had Superman be a gladiator before, but I got to tell you, man, PKJ, Philip Kennedy Johnson, this issue, this is the issue that I'm in. I really, really like this. Daniel Sampier's art is fantastic. It was just great as great last issue. This has really pulled me in. I'm, I'm really interested now. I particularly like the interaction with the Atlanteans, with the, with Aquaman showing up. And I love them playing, claiming Atlantean jurisdiction on this war zone battleship that sinks in the Atlantic. And they're claiming that this is our battleship. And they're claiming dibs on the power source that powers this ship, which apparently comes from the source in quotation. And I'm wondering what that means is when they say that this is powered from the source, this incredible energy source. Are they talking about the source wall? What do they mean, the source? But it's very interesting. And they refuse to give it to Superman to study because they're going to study it. And Superman respects uh, Aquaman's uh, Atlantean jurisdiction there. And uh, and in the meantime, in the meantime, we have, um, you know, we've got them trying to figure out exactly what's going on john kent's suspicious he feared his uh, as i said he fears his dad is is dying he fears that these these refugees are uh that clearly there's that there might be other refugees involved and we know that there are there are other refugees on war worlds because mongol threatened these refugees saying look clearly mongol has said to these refugees this is what you're going to do and if you don't do what i tell you to do once you're on earth 
uh, I'm going to kill all your other, other refugees here on War World. So these three Kryptonian refugees, I think, are clearly being manipulated. I think that's strongly implied by the ending. And this is, I mean, this is building up suspense. I mean, I really like this. I really, really like this issue. I love the character work. I love the dialogue. For once, John Kent, John Kent's suspicions were grounded in some degree of logic, I think, as opposed to him just being flippant and maybe a little bit, dare I say, stupid, because I felt he was portrayed as, you know, ego. Yeah. And, um, anyways, I, I enjoyed this man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I feel much better about the direction of the storyline for the first time than I have since Philip Kennedy Johnson took over the Superman title and act Superman series, uh, title. So, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with a lot of uh, what you said. I don't think that I, I agree with John Kent. I don't think that these, uh, these refugees are Kryptonian. Um, I think they're, I, I don't know if Mongol taught them you know, some Kryptonian language, because again, his goal is to, to lure Superman in, you know, he says as much, that's why he branded them with the, uh, the symbol of their enemy is how Mongol puts it. So I think it has everything to do with, with Mongol doing whatever he can to try to get Superman to come to war world. So I don't really think they're, they're Kryptonian. I I agree with that, uh, with John's thinking there. Uh, We know it's going to pull Superman in because we know future state happens. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. This is this seems like Philip Kennedy Johnson is finally moving the story forward. We've put all the angst and um, you know exploring emotion and whatever behind us, and we're getting some what feels like some true Superman comics now with some character moments in there with John, you know, getting angry because he, he's worried about his father. That rings true. That's better to me than seeing John and Superman sitting on a, a mountaintop somewhere, you know, with you know, talking about their feelings, like, no, it's still a comic. It's still Superman. There should still be action. Um, so much like over in the Superman title, where I feel like once they started going to that alien planet and started, you know, actually go on an adventure, have some action, that's where the story started to take shape. I feel the same way here. Um, I, I do think it's a piece of the source wall. I thought, man, these Atlant. So just context, everybody, Mira and and Aquaman, Arthur Curry, they gave up the throne. They abolished the monarchy of Atlantis. It's now ruled by this ruling council. They're the ones that make the decision. And they, they intimate that the only reason they even allowed Superman to come down and look at the ruins of the ship, because it's under Atlantean jurisdiction, it's at the bottom of the sea. And the only reason they told him about this piece of the source wall that's powering this ship is out of respect for their former king, but no, they're not going to allow him to take it back to the fortress of solitude and examine it. And my immediate thought was, man, how much of a douchebag do you have to be to not trust Superman? <laughs> he'll, he'll bring it back to you Atlanteans. I would want <laughs> Superman. If, if anybody's going to be examining this huge, you know, chunk of power, uh, this artifact, I want it to be Superman because, first of all, he has Kryptonian technology, which is very, very advanced. Second of all, if anything goes wrong with it, it's freaking Superman. So I can 100% see PKJ is planting seeds here for the Atlanteans are going to try to, you know, figure out a way to channel the energy or do some kind of examination, and it's going to blow up in their faces, and they're going to end up looking pretty stupid for not letting Superman take it out. They'll be calling him for help. Uh, and, you know, you kind of wish Superman 
would go, hey, I offered to take it off your hands, but it's your problem now. Sorry. Yeah, but you know, we won't do that because he's Superman. It's why Superman is such a better person than me because I'd be like, no, you didn't want me to take it. It was Atlantean jurisdiction. So, I, but again, that's great character work. That's great foreboding and, and interesting storytelling. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that we're, we are getting some good movement. This is getting interesting. Um, when Superman leaves Earth and goes to War World, will it stay interesting? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Because like Rocky said, we've, we've had this story before. Uh, I also wonder what's what's up with the chains. These people don't want to give up their chains. It must in some way prolong their lives. Um, you know, I, I would certainly right. wouldn't put it past Mongol to yeah. somehow tie their life force into these chains. Hey, you got to keep your chains on or, or you die. That seems like completely something Mongol would do. So we'll see how that all plays out as well. Yeah. I took that um, as a sign of I took that as a sign of loyalty to to Mongol that they don't remove their chains because they know their place. Mongol is their leader, and Mongol decides only Mongol can remove the chains. That's that's what I sort of assumed there. And uh, yeah, it, it could be, but but I also wouldn't put it past Mongol to to make that a little more literal. You know, <laughs> take off the chains and you die. So so I guess we'll see. Uh, I also agree with you on the art; absolutely spectacular art and colors. The line works great, texture, shading, everything is spot on. Um, so yeah, I can I, I'm I'm pretty interested. I'm more interested in this. I think this is by far the best issue that Philip Kennedy Johnson has done from uh, from Action Comics so far. So I'm um, I'm really excited. Um, I'm less excited about the Midnighter story. I think we're both pretty big fans of what Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad are doing on uh, on Wonder Woman right now, in the pages of Wonder Woman. Um, but again, the, the the backup for Midnighter in the Future State books was pretty subpar, and this is just kind of continuing it. Uh, Michael Avon Oming shouldn't—he's he, not the right artist for this. He's great drawing like crime noir pieces. I think slice of life stories he can draw very well. He just doesn't, for my mind, his line work and his uh, like his storytelling—it just doesn't suit comics. Uh, or uh, superhero comics, rather. Uh, it just it doesn't convey enough kind of dynamic motion in my mind. So um, it, it's it's kind of boring. You want to talk about feeling like this story should have been over already. My God, my God, um, can we just get to the end of this Midnighter story already? So I don't know. I just I'm I'm not liking it. It's a chore to read, honestly. So I don't know. Um, again, yeah. I, I'll, I'll say the same thing that I said about Detective. You know, knock a buck off and and just leave that stuff on the cutting room floor. Just give me the Superman story. Yeah, I I agree that the Midnighter backup is. Uh, I just don't understand where it's going. I think it's confusing. I think it was uh, along with the Mister Miracle Future State was one of the worst of Future State, and it was the most confusing. Uh, fortunately, the Midnighter series, as we just uh, finished uh, reviewing, we. You know, it's very well done by Brandon Easton. But this uh, this is not. Uh, the Midnighter backup here in the pages of uh, Action Comics continues to be just uh, a redundancy. And it actually detracts from the narrative. It's, it's that confusing. If ever there was a backup that desperately needed a recap page, it's this Midnighter backup. It would really, really benefit from a recap page. And to add confusion, and I almost don't even want to say this, but 
it, it actually ends with the revelation that the present day Andre Trojan has Shiloh Norman uh, captured. Well, that's kind of confusing. So does this take place after the current Shiloh Norman in the pages of Mr. Miracle number one or before? I, I, I don't really know, but I, I don't even want to know this. We get nothing out of this out of this Midnighter series. It's confusing. It's terrible. It doesn't advance the relationship between Midnighter and Apollo. It's it's called the Passenger. This Andre Chojin is an is not a particularly interesting villain. He's occupying Midnighter's thoughts, but for what what purpose? What end? They keep talking about time paradoxes, and Andre Chojin tells Midnighter, "You can't kill my pre- my my present self." Because if you do, then my future self won't manifest and you're going to screw up time and like the butterfly effect and all of that other jazz. And I'm thinking to myself, why the hell can't Midnighter do whatever the hell he wants? Because he's he's already changing time already. He's already messing with things and doing things differently than he normally would do. I mean, this thing, this whole thing was so poorly conceived. I mean, I hate to say it, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, I don't think they thought this through very well at all. And if they did, I'd like to think in their defense, I'd like to be able to say that maybe they were editorially forced to make, you know, to make plot point A to flow into plot point B and just force it somehow. But either way, this is an utter failure of narrative. And I just, (laughs) I'm not even going to attempt to put, to sugarcoat my words here because sometimes I just run out of lipstick for the pig and I'll leave it at that. That's just, I mean, we'll just leave it at that. Don't know why it needs to be told because it's, it's not, it's not very good. Uh, so yeah, so that does it for, um, for the DC books. Uh, like we said, tons of, of DC content already out at your, at your local comic shop. So (laughs) go down there and and pick it up. And and if you do be sure you, uh, pick up star girl because it, uh, for Rocky and I both, it was our favorite DC book of, of the week. Um, just, yeah, it was just spectacular. There's also a few trades. There's uh, an authority volume two trade. That's out this week. There's a Flash Impulse Runs in the Family trade that's out this week. Uh, there's a print copy of the Milestone Returns Infinite Edition, which previously had only been digital, which gives sort of a preview of the Milestone universe and and the return of those characters. So that is out this week as well. Uh, a lot of people might be looking for that. And then there's a uh, the, the latest uh, Superman Volume 4 trade paperback, Mythological is out and then uh, if you're a big fan of the Patrick uh, or the Peter J Tomasi and Patrick Gleason run on Superman which had a lot of uh, the Super Sons in it and a lot of stuff with John when he was the appropriate age and uh, and Lois and Clark there's a hardcover omnibus that's coming out this week that collects that entire run it's 125 bucks so there are a few collections out in addition to the books that we talked about so a lot of good DC stuff out this week um so as we're winding down here, Rocky, anything that you want to tease that you got uh, coming up? I know we we sort of did that on uh, on Monday's episode for Radiant Black, but uh, any changes or anything that you want to mention? Uh, honestly, I've I've got a couple of ideas. I don't have anything. I, I just I I pumped out a Black Adam review, and I did a I I did another uh, I did an, another video on headlight on headlight comics. You know, headlight comics were uh, comic books that accentuated and focused on uh, the female, a particular chest portion of the female anatomy uh, from the 1940s. And I, I explored the idea, are there modern day headlight comics? And of course there are. And I, I show a bunch of them. And uh, th- those of you can check out my channel. I, I uh, you know, 
the Purian fanboy in me uh, comes out every now and then. I am an older collector, and I uh, I enjoy, you know, I I like having a little bit of fun. You know, the old Purian fanboy. I think it's nice to maybe uh, just stare at the female form every now and then and abandon some of the wokeness and just embrace some of my uh, uh, past, dare I say, a little bit maybe chauvinist uh, male uh, self, you know, have a little fun, you know, that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, Well, uh, I I, I teased a couple things on... Uh, on Monday, because we recorded that episode on on Sunday night, and then I woke up s- uh, Monday morning to a thousand emails, um, and I think I set like six interviews up on on Monday with people that just clamoring, "Hey, we want to come on the show. We want to come on the show." So uh, there's a lot a lot of stuff coming down down the pipe. So uh, first thing I'll mention is uh, on Wednesday. Hopefully, this episode will be out either later tonight, definitely out by Wednesday. So. Yeah. Uh, in addition to our uh, non-spoiler uh, Wednesday New Comics Wednesday episode, where we cover a lot of the other books, there will also be our normal Kickstarter spotlight on Wednesday, and we're going to be talking to Mark Bernardin, uh, who's a comic book writer and a writer for television, and uh, kind of a little departure from what we usually do. We're actually going to talk about the Kickstarter he's been running for a short film that he wants to uh, create uh, about this incredible story idea he has about this boy who is not allowed to touch the ground. So it's this 10-year-old boy, completely innocent, through no fault of his own, nothing he's done in, in terms of you know choices he's made or anything has caused him to be in prison this way. But basically, yeah, he's trapped on this plane and it just flies around the world and never lands um, And uh, for, for reasons. Um, it's very much Twilight Zone in, inspired and it's fantastic. So I had a great conversation with Mark uh, about that, and we did talk a little bit about some of his comic work as well. So that's coming out on this week's Kickstarter Spotlight. Uh, I'm also interviewing, once again, uh, for the third time, Jim Starlin, uh, who is, you know, one of – he was my my bucket list guy for the longest time, and I finally interviewed him at Comic-Con a couple of years ago. And I don't usually get starstruck, you know, interviewing people. And I, was, I wasn't in the moment, but when I walked out of that interview room and was walking back to my condo – my hands were shaking. I, I was so hyped up from <laughs> He's having a legend. Finally, He's a legend. Yeah. Yeah. From finally getting down to, uh, from finally getting to sit down and, and interview Jim Starlin. And then uh, we had him on the show last year, right as the pandemic was starting. Uh, they were, he was running a Kickstarter for Dreadstar Returns. Um, and not only did, Dread, did it mark the return of Dreadstar, but it was also the return of Jim to the drawing board. So for those that um, aren't aware, Jim suffered a, a terrible accident in his home with one of those uh, pressurized CO2 canisters for like your home soda, you know, make your own soda, um, carbonated beverage kind of things. And it blew up in his hand and he had nerve damage and, and he wasn't able to draw for a few years and he was finally able to come back. Um, and so he has finished that. Uh, so they're going to be fulfilling the Kickstarter pretty soon. And they're also going to have copies of Dreadstar Returns uh, available for sale. I don't know if they're actually going to be in comic shops or what exactly. So we'll find out from Jim when I when I talk to him tomorrow. But that's all coming in June. So Jim's going to come back on the show to tell us how the process went of uh, live, going back and living in that world of Dreadstar. Really looking forward to it. It's always a pleasure to talk to him. As Rocky said, he's a, he's an absolute legend. And then some other things are coming down uh, the pipe that I can't talk about yet uh, because uh, things are embargoed and uh, announcements are coming later uh, next month about uh, about some things. So. 
Um, but a lot of stuff is coming. A lot, I'm so busy with all this podcast stuff, and it's a great problem to have. So be sure you go over to YouTube. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, be sure you head over to YouTube and you subscribe to the Comic Boom uh, uh, YouTube channel for Rocky. That's Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Click on the notification bell. Give this video a like. Uh, do everything you can to help support Rocky and, and what he does. And, of course, we appreciate you all uh, sub subscribing to the Comic Source as well on whatever podcast platform you use. We're available everywhere. So uh, we appreciate the support. We wouldn't do this if you guys weren't watching and listening. So uh, thanks again. Uh, any last words, Rocky? No, just thanks, everybody, for uh, listening and watching. And we'll catch you next week for sure. Yeah, uh, again, apologies for this one being late. Uh, we should be on time with our DC books moving forward. We got all that uh, sort of ironed out. So appreciate everybody listening, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.